Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanfer here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. Today's episode is number 318. We're going to be discussing understanding police response to active shooters and also mass casualty events, all that kind of stuff. Uh, today is October 26, 2022. This is a topic I've actually been wanting to talk about for a long time. Um, this is one of those topics that, in my opinion, it's kind of necessary to understand what's going on, to have a greater appreciation for the complexity of a situation like this. If we have an active shooter in a mall, in a school, in a hospital, you name it, the expectation is law enforcement goes and stops, stops the killing. Yes, I believe everyone's on the same page. When Columbine occurred, that changed the mindset, that changed the response of law enforcement. We were no longer surrounding and waiting for SWAT. The expectation, and when I say expectation, I don't mean that as, that's not derogatory. That is, this is what we need to do. This is our duty. And part of our job is to respond. It is, again, it is our duty to go in and immediately um, confront, the, confront the killer. 
part of this also is we may not be able to stop them immediately, but to the very least, if we can draw fire, we're drawing fire away from uh, victims. And I'd much rather be the person shot at than innocent bystanders. So this is to me a, a very important discussion uh, with Uvalde. There were horrible things that were done that shouldn't have, or actually lack of things done. There were things that were not done that should have been done. And to add upon that, that was basically gas on the fire were people watching and clearly from the outside and saying, well, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Without understanding, okay, these are the protocols. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And so we're going to discuss some of this. Additionally, once we've kind of discussed, okay, this is what law enforcement response is. This is why you're seeing what you're seeing on TV. We're also going to talk about, okay, what happens if you're in close proximity to something like this, where you may be immediately affected, where you might be in, you might be in a school, you might be in a public area where a shooting occurs. What are things for you to consider? What are things you can do now to prepare? And what are considerations that you should have uh, with you? Um, one of the big things that we discuss on a regular basis, I say this almost on every Instagram post. Okay. A lot of Instagram posts is mission, uh, drives the gear. What is your mission? Why are you carrying a gun? All right. Is your, is your mission to end the threat or is it to escape? So these are things to consider uh, during this whole discussion. Now, one of the things I really like to say with every single episode is make sure you support those sources that you have found to be beneficial. What I mean by that is when these guys are talking, if you like what they're saying, find them on social media. Shortly, they're going to be giving their backgrounds and where you can find them. Keep that in mind at the end, we'll, we'll, re, we'll review this, but listen to what they have to say. If you like what they're saying, make sure you find them on social media, give them likes, subscribe. If there's anything especially pertinent that they've produced that's helped you in some way or changed your life or provides a new perspective that you appreciate, you should probably share that. Um, the way I feel about this, that was, that's one of the best parts of primary and secondary is being able to reach out to, to people of this caliber and have these meaningful discussions and finding out these are some heavy hitters. These are wonderful people that are providing wonderful information. I want to, I want to help promote them. And so have them on podcasts, share their content on, on my channels. And it just helps everyone grow. So with that in mind, my background is in law enforcement, been doing the cop thing since last century. I have taken a tremendous amount of active shooter type training. Uh, the pinnacle personally for me is going through Darcy. I don't know how many times as a student, I think I've been through as a student three times for the level one uh, counterterrorism school. And then once for level two, where we were doing ballistic and explosive breaching. And then after that, I believe I did somewhere between five and seven times as an assistant instructor. Each of those sessions is a week long of a hundred hours of training. It's in my opinion, some of the absolute best training I've ever had. It's not shooting training. It's mindset training and tactics training. So before we can even start considering that we need to have a foundation of skills with firearms. That way, when we're in the middle of a Sims gunfight, when we're clearing a, a structure, we're not focused on our bubble. We're not focused on keeping our gun running. We're focusing on what the problem is immediately and then the problem afterwards. So uh, along with that, I've taken numerous, let's see here, a bunch of alert training, uh, 
various uh, department sponsored trainings from various departments, uh, both departments I didn't work with as well as my own. And I also uh, enjoy putting on that kind of training on a regular basis because it's, that's a perishable skill set. Just even just room clearing, discussing muzzle orientation. Um, it's a, it's a deep subject and it needs attention. So that's my background. I think I'm going to have Lee talk now. Well, my background is not nearly as interesting as Ed's, so the audience should need to be waiting and baiting anticipation for that. That's why he's last. Um, I'll tell you how long I've been policing. I was in field training when Columbine occurred. Uh, four days later, responded to what we thought was a copycat incident. It uh, turned out that was an inopportune time for college students to determine that that was a good time to film uh, mock action movie in a parking deck next to a college campus building. Um, you know, in the academy, which I had just completed, they'd always talk about setting perimeter and SWAT team went in and handled the big thing. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, we have to learn how to form these four and five man diamond formations and wedge formations and go in and address that. Now, the agency I was with at the time had the numbers to throw that kind of a solution at the problem. Uh, we had the numbers. I don't won't necessarily say we had the personnel. And I, I remember having discussions with a couple of, of the other guys who were a little bit more switched on with, with firearms and tactics, and we kind of had an agreement that, uh, yeah, one of us is going as lead and the other one's watching the other one's back, and we're going straight to the problem. Um, you know, and now it took a couple of years and for that to kind of morph into what we now know as the, you know, as the single officer response. I think alert's got a, got a term for that. Um, you know, immediately you got to get on the scene and address the deadly threat. And I know Ed's got a lot of good information on that. Uh, as far as specific training, you know, my agency did stuff way back then in the immediate post Columbine era and then the Virginia Tech era. Um, I've got an active shooter instructor certification from team one network, uh, which was the old H and K guys. And then I've, uh, active shooter instructor through Fletzy and some other odds and ends and, and, you know, various local agency and services with that. Um, where you can find me that Weems guy. And first is my podcast, and then first person safety is my training business. And with that, I yield to Ed Monk. Take it away, Ed. My name is Ed Monk. Uh, I'm a retired lieutenant colonel from the Army. I spent 24 years active duty in the Army. And when I first got into this active shooter thing, I did not think that applied, but it, but it actually does. And me and my brother own Last Resort Farms Training, a small little uh, gun training facility in Arkansas. So because of my last few years in the Army, and then immediately after retiring from the Army, I taught high school, public high school for four years. What I was getting told by my leaders the last couple of years in my Army career, and then in my four years of teaching of how we should respond to active shooters, just seemed so absurd to me. It, it seemed what they were telling me to do not only wouldn't help, but would actually it was, we were gonna, I was going to be an accessory in my own murder. I was actually going to make the active shooter's job easier uh, and help get my kids killed. And so, but I, I had not looked into it. So as many things, when you think you're right and they're wrong, I said, like, maybe I just don't understand. So that's what got me 
diving into what's now 15 years of trying to study and understand this threat and how to best address it. Um, I was a uh, deputy in Louisville, Kentucky for a few years before I moved down here, and now I'm a part-time two officer in my small city here, so I'm a wannabe cop here in lovely Whitehall, Arkansas. So I've studied this problem for like the last 15 years. I started giving training on it for about the last 11 years, both educational presentations to churches, schools, universities, law enforcement agencies, et cetera. And I do hands-on training for those that are armed that want to better prepare themselves. And since Uvalde, uh, it's, the demand has absolutely exploded. I've been to 12 states giving presentations and training on this from coast to coast since Uvalde. Um, but unfortunately, everybody gets excited and wants to do something after a big attack, but they don't want to do what will actually lower the numbers. They just want to do something. So they'll ask people to come speak. They'll, they'll take some training. They'll type up, make a slight change to their policy, but they won't connect it to the outcome that they want. They just want to do something. Um, and how long does that last? For, a, for about two to three months. Yeah. And it depends on how bad the shooting is. So I actually have a slide that shows that. As a country, we're normally asleep. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to hear any new ideas. We certainly don't want to change because our, what we're doing is working fine because we, we're not having an active shooter right now. And then we have a Uvalde or a Parkland or then we have a big one. Well, now our hair's on fire. And now the media is covering it 24-7 and we're emotional and political. People are trying to make a political agenda out of it. And we appoint task forces to study it and we buy new products. We spend a lot of money and then we pat ourselves on the back because by God, we did something this time. And then we go back to sleep and hit the snooze button yep. until the next. And we've been doing that for almost 40 years now. And then when the next one happens and it's a high victim count, we act shocked. We act shocked that Uvalde had a high number. Why did they have a high number? Because they had the same plan as Parkland, as Santa Fe, as Sandy Hook, as Columbine, as Stockton. They have the same plan as those other ones that had high numbers, yet they look surprised when they have the same result. So that's what I've been doing. It's very frustrating for the last 15 years as I've gone around uh, and trying to get people to change their policies and plans. But we'll see if that happens. What's that phrase about the definition of insanity? Yeah. <laughs> Henry Ford, I think, said, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you've always got. And that's... It, uh, if you ask, if you go into any school, and, I, and that's what I challenge people to do, go to their school board meetings and say, how does our school significantly, our plan to respond to an active shooter here in school X, how does it differ than Uvalde's? Well, we have different locks. You know, it'll be something minor or, or something. We spell this word different. We put a comma exactly. in place on our plan, but it won't have anything to do with lowering the numbers. How does the plan of our school here in my city, how does it differ than Sandy? How does it differ than Parkland? And it doesn't. And like I had a principal recently say, and I hear what you're saying when I'm trying to get him to change the plan. He goes, but we've had this lockdown for over 20 years. And it's worked great for us. It hadn't been a problem at all. It was well, yeah. Because he hadn't shown up yet. And not wearing your seatbelt works just fine as long as the drunk driver doesn't swerve into your head-ons. But that's the that's what I keep encountering most of the time. Small successes, but most of the time. Lee, what's that uh, Chuck Haggard quote? Fortuitous outcomes. Oh, gosh. Um, 
I should have it just posted on my wall because I bring it up all the time. Gratuitous scout. I don't know what word for word, but something like gratuitous scout comes reinforced bad tactics or something like that. Yeah. 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 Fortuitous outcomes, reinforced bad tactics. So, uh, yeah, Lee, you have some. Yeah. I should, I should have. For 12 years, I was the chief deputy of my county sheriff's office. My sheriff retired. New sheriff comes in, new command staff. Uh, so, when I speak tonight, I'm when I talk about agency planning, everything, I'm speaking from my experience from when I was in command that I am not. Uh, a spokesman for the agency currently and i'm not present for the current meetings and yeah. the decision making so things may have changed yeah and so I, I can't speak speak to that so anything i say is as far as command relations yeah. does go back to when i was in that position and that's been a year and a half now well since january 1st of 21 um yeah so, so Again, I'm not a spokesman for my agency currently. Yeah, yeah, and we can we can definitely talk in generalizations uh-huh. because for the most part, there have been some standardized. Well, the expectation is going to be the same no matter what. Yeah. Officers need to go in, period. And number two, well, they need to stop the killing, but also um, that the, the the public should be aware of some of the general practices. Uh-huh. Because I think if they understand what's going on, there may be less outrage. So if they see, you know, there yeah, might there be. Won't, there won't be less outrage. There might be. It'll just, okay. it'll, so it'll the be... people that listen to the episode, <laughs> all two of them. It'll be the same outrage, but maybe with different focuses and words. They put a comma or they, they spell something Yeah, it's going like to be what said. Ed just described. Yep, yep. Are we um, talking about outrage that results from watching police response to active shooters? Is that the outrage that we're, what outrage are we so, talking about? All the above. All the above. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone can do to stop that because we could have the absolute best possible outcome. Though the best outcome is there is no incident. Is that possible? No. In a society where we live, in a free society, uh, there are some inherent dangers. And unfortunately, that's part of what we live with. But we could have well-trained officers that can spot things, that can respond quickly. Uh, We can have sufficient officers and coverage to respond in a timely manner. If I remember correctly, and I think I have the two right people that can correct this, uh, this stat, I think, was it Virginia Tech that kind of established, was it every 30 seconds or every minute there was a fatality or uh, someone murdered? So essentially, for me, that frames how my response should be. Do I go to the, do I park in front of the car or park in front of the school, throw on all this armor, put on all this additional stuff, grab a rifle and then go in, which might have taken a minute or two? Or do I grab the rifle, go in, and that is a much faster, or do I just go in, period? What, what I train is just, uh, Lee, I think has seen it. Get the fudge in there. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Just get the fudge in there. Yes. Uh, don't, don't pop the trunk. Don't gather stuff. There's a reason we wear a pistol on our body. Wherever we go, the pistol's there. So when I talk to cops and I, sh- I show them the time and it kind of looks like, and, and of course, when the cop gets there, it, this has already been happening. Yep. And we police love to talk about response time, but 
Cops know it, but most citizens don't. When they say response time, that's from that starts when the cop got the call, not when the first shot was fired. Yeah. So the first, the cop might have got the first radio call six minutes after the yes. first shot. So there's art. The way it kind of looks to me, the average is one person's. I don't know about dead because that varies. The fatality rate varies, but how many are shot seems to me the average is about one every ten seconds. But it's front-loaded because he's going to shoot more rapidly in the first minute. So it kind of looks like around 10 to 12 at the end of the first minute, around 20 at the end of the second minute, around 25 at the end of the third minute. So every few seconds, you pop the trunk, unzip your rifle bag, get the rifle out, load a mag, turn on the red dot, chamber around, get your go bag, get your active shooter bag, get your extra mag bag. Every few seconds, other people are getting shot. So get in there. Because not too long behind you is a whole battalion-sized element of people coming with ammo and food and water and everything you could ever want. Medical support, just get in there because the clock's ticking. And be confident in the gun that you wear and be able to use it. And yes, many active shooters, I would argue most, um, start with long guns. So you're going to be outgunned if you go in there with a handgun, but you're not going to be outskilled. Uh, and people say, you know, I, I play the video of the San Ysidro McDonald's, the first cop that arrived, got there 15 minutes after the first shot. And I've got him on video saying, I got there, the guy went out the side window with the McDonald's and shot at me with an Uzi, and all I had was a 38 revolver. So I was completely outgunned, so all I could do was take cover. Well, 38 and a 9mm are pretty equivalent, so he was not outgunned. So I show them examples where cops and citizens with handguns have successfully defeated active shooters with long guns. What I tell them is it doesn't matter what he has. He could have a bazooka or a flamethrower. If you can put two of what you've got here or four of what you have here, it doesn't matter what he has. So go get close enough to him for your skill level and use the tool you carry on your belt and, and get it over with quick. If you get it over with quick, the victim count will be low and everything else gets easier evacuating wounded, treating wounded, accountability, reunification, all the stuff after it becomes much easier once the active shooters stop. Yeah, and that uh, that kind of reinforces what I said before. At the very least, you're splitting their attention, hopefully that they're going to focus on you and shoot at you and not all the people at, at the target area. Oh, I'd much rather have them shoot somebody with some amount of training yep. and a service-sized pistol and hopefully a vest than six-year-olds in a classroom or 18-year-olds in an all-food court. Yep. And what I, what I tell them, there's so much goodness that can happen if you just get the fudge in there. Yep. Um, just by aggressing on them and they know you're close, they could clock out. Not all of them do, but yeah. two of them have. You, I'm not a big fan of missing in public places. But if you should happen to take a shot and miss, a lot of them, when that happens, clock themselves out yep. or they give up like in Bethel, Alaska, or you could hit them. And a lot of them, once a cop or a good person hits them with a bullet, they clock themselves out, they give up, or you could actually hit them and physically stop them. So there's about 10 good things that can happen if you just get in there. If you stay behind your car or stay outside the building, you're not causing any goodness nope. to happen. You're just letting the clock tick, and every few seconds, another innocent person is getting shot. Absolutely. And I have a slot. A lot, there's a lot of cops. A lot of great cops have gotten wounded uh, responding to active shooters. 
but darn few have been killed. I think only five and two of those five were accidentally shot by other cops. So is it dangerous? Of course, is there a chance of getting wounded? Of course, but the chance of dying is, is, is pretty darn small. Yeah. Pretty darn small. And it sounds like your audio issue continues. Uh, I will try to stay closer to my microphone. I don't know if that's it. Cause it almost sounds like it might be a software issue. Uh-oh. Yeah. Lee, any. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Virginia tech and that's one of the incidents that just has burned me up for the years, not for the law enforcement response for, I'm just going to phrase the internet response and the media response to that incident, because there was so much patently wrong information that shaped the narrative in that incident. Um, there were actually murders in a dorm prior to the shooting event in the classroom. The victim of the murder in the dorm was involved in a very uh, tenuous relationship uh, with, with a boyfriend. And the initial presumption was is that her boyfriend had killed her. And so they had two SWAT teams on campus planning to go look for the boyfriend when the shooting across campus in the, in the classroom building occurred, those two SWAT teams, their response time from the time, the time the call came in, not from the time the incident started, as Ed just pointed out, their response time was to drive across the college campus and go to the building. Already kitted up and ready. Yeah, there were two SWAT teams already ready to go. Uh, one SWAT team went into a mechanical room and got stuck by the door that had been padlocked. And the other one went in and started trying to go up a staircase and ran into the padlock door. They had to deal with those situations. The patrol officers that were photographed and filmed in a perimeter on the building were doing exactly what they should have done. There were two, not one, two SWAT teams in the building. And those guys were called cowards. How could they stand outside? They were doing exactly the yep. Yep. what they should have been doing. Uh, the response was actually one of the best responses that's ever happened to one of these instances, other than they ran into the ch chain doors and had to breach those and get in. Get in. Um, one of the SWAT teams, if I remember correctly, had made it to the second floor and was running down the hallway when the guy offed himself in the face of confrontation, as Ed was just saying. So as soon as he was pressured, yeah. off he goes. Um, you can't, other than the fact if someone had, one, it hadn't happened, or two, someone had had something to immediately been able to pop that, that lock on that door, uh, which now we all know to have that stuff available, uh, you know, to get in and go, what else could they have done? Yep. Uh, you know, people, this whole thing about lockdown, I suppose it is possible to lock down an elementary school. Uh, I, I suppose. I spent 10 years on a college campus as an employee, and I've got three degrees from three different institutions. So I spent a lot of time around a college campus, and I've taught at a fourth institution. There is no way, short of three days in the National Guard, to lock down a college campus. Uh, I was involved in an incident providing security for a former president with the Secret Service in charge, and someone still managed to slip into the <laughs> to, to a secured area. 
lockdown of college campus isn't going to happen. Now that's different than a school campus that's that's uh, a single building, somewhat, somewhat possibly controlled, possibly controlled. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to get that out about Virginia Tech because it still just burns me up over. That's a All perfect the, example. The false information that goes out there. And then you and I were in constant communication during Uvalde. And, you know, you and I kept, we don't know what to believe because yeah. we saw what happened in Virginia Tech. We didn't know what to believe about what's coming out of Uvalde. You know, there was a United States uh, representative that was putting out stories about he had personally spoken to two officers who were wounded trying to breach the door. I don't know that turned out to be true. Yeah. And it was it was also reported that a school yeah. resource officer engaged him in gunfire outside the school before he went in. And that, yeah. that was reported for two or three days. Right. Well, the, the Texas uh, DPS commissioner uh, reported that he got in the building through a propped open door. And then that turned out not to be true. <laughs> I, I spoke at the Lethal Force Conference just a little bit after Uvalde and I won't go into any details for at least a month after a shooting because yes. so much bad information. And this was a great example of so much bad information. Uh -huh. uh, let it, let it settle down and, and see what happened. And speculating and spreading the rumor, it does <laughs> no one any favors. It just makes people upset. And there's enough of that with the actual incident. So there's no reason to add on to it. <laughs> You know, and all those people, you know, God bless them. I understand the emotion. Uh, you know, I would have gone in and all this kind of stuff. Well, if that's your position, then your nightstand pocket dump pictures that you put on Instagram better have your breaching tools in them. I have breaching tools in my truck. Well, police <laughs> truck. Yeah. yeah, but do you have carry them around when you're playing Matt the dad? All the time. That's why. <laughs> hold on. You got a house. This is what I'm carrying pocket? a lot of the time. So yeah. when I'm, yeah, yeah. Um, but th th that's kind of also showing. Okay, the, the expectation of the public not knowing. Okay, this is what we're actually doing. That was a that was a perfect example with Virginia Tech. And though Virginia Tech for me was a good example, or it it provided me with something. Okay. Comparing Columbine to Virginia Tech, these guys are learning. They're they're improving. They're learning from past incidents. Because of Virginia Tech, that's why I carry a, a pry bar, a sledge, and uh, uh, bolt cutters. I now have a Halligan, even just yeah. hopefully speeding up our response if if necessary. Uh, one of the discussions we had with our personnel was. Put your patrol car through the wall of the school. We can yes. get in the car. Yes. They can build another wall. And if, if there's double doors, you can drive it through there. If it's a single door, you can use the corner of your unit to breach that probably enough yeah. to get your body through. Yeah. yeah. Well, hell yeah. If you well, most most school doors have glass. And if you're if your car is able to at least break the glass and you can't pop the door open, the the glass broken, you could hopefully just open the door from the inside then lee lee brought up the lockdown can i go off on the lockdown for a little bit absolutely okay um most schools i, I deal with um and so i'm assuming from that extrapolating that most schools nationwide uh, have bought into the lockdown 
And I, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because it's easy to type and it's easy to drill. Uh, when I was a teacher in Kentucky, the assistant principal in charge of security, they would say lockdown, lockdown. He would go around with the clipboard and look into each classroom and make sure you were doing those things in a lockdown drill. He would check it off and they would report to state. That, yes, we have successfully completed another drill. Easy to type, easy to drill. So we like that kind of thing. Uh, works fine when the active shooter's not there. I, I think it's an example of driving a round peg into a square hole. It's, it's something we have, so we try to use it for something we shouldn't use it for. Um, similarly, when I was little, uh, we, you know, the Cold War, and we have, I'm in Arkansas, we have tornadoes, so we, we would get down under the desk. Yep. And for a tornado and for a nuclear warning, that, that might be legitimate. But we had Columbine in 99, where the teacher in the media center told the kids she knew there was two active shooters. And she told the kids not to run, not to flee, but to, to hide under the desk. And then Uvalde in 2022, the teacher in classroom 111 told his kids to get under the tables. The exact same thing that Columbine did. That again, not, doesn't help, but it makes the shooter's job easier. Um, so... When I talk to the schools and high school active shooters are, are more than elementary and middles combined. So the majority of school shootings are, are high school shootings. And I go there and they always, let me, let me, the principal or whoever, let me, let me talk to you about our, we have a great lockdown plan. Oh, really? Well, most high school shootings start in the cafeteria before school or during lunch. So show me how your lockdown drill works in the cafeteria. <laughs> and he has no plan for the cafeteria because that's not easy. He has a real easy plan for the hallway. Well, now let's go in the hallway. How does it work in the hallway? Well, we get in the rooms and we close and we lock the doors, which is exactly what we did, what we were told to do, in the classrooms where I taught. So we keep them behind these locked doors. Well, Parkland, which is not that long ago, he went into the first floor of that building and he shot 24 people on the first floor. 18 of those 24 were behind locked doors, locked inside their classrooms, and he shot through the door and shot 18 of his 24 on the first floor. So if the, the door is not bulletproof and the wall is not bulletproof, then the lockdown drill is an illusion of security. Um, he could have shot through the walls in Parkland because it was drywall, but he didn't. He shot through the doors instead. And what did the shooter in Uvalde do? When he got in and went down the hallway, before he entered classroom 111, he shot through the drywall and then went inside and, and then came back out and shot through the wall again. So... The lockdown, it's a everything is a double-edged sword. We, we want to say, if you go down to Home Depot and buy some locks, then we're all safe. But we're, we have to war game this against a thinking, evil, creative, adaptive enemy. Not someone who's going to walk up and shake a door and find it locked and go, oh, darn it, and turn around and go back because they don't do that. Sandy Hook, their doors were locked. He walked up and shot his way through the glass. Greenville Elementary, his plan was to shoot through the glass of a second grade classroom on the first floor, go in, shoot his way through the glass, go in, kill everybody in that classroom, take the teacher's pass key, and then go throughout the school unopposed. Luckily, he got there and saw kids on the playground and decided to attack that first as gun malfunction, so he got a very low number. But that was the evil plan, and people probably thought our doors are locked, we're all safe. Well, how does your lockdown drill work with your kids on the playground? It doesn't. What's your plan to protect your kids on the playground? Because that's one of the most likely places elementary kids are going to get shot at because the shooter's not an insider, it's an outside. They have no plan for that. They just have this lockdown drill that's 
that works for other things. If you have somebody outside the school uh, locking the, the, the building down and securing the doors, if if you got a tip that little Eddie Monk brought some drugs or a gun in and he's got it in his locker to do a lockdown until the cops come in and take care of it. But we're applying that against this evil active shooter and it, it, it not only keeps us, doesn't keep us safer, it could make it actually worse. Um, we've got to start doing something different. Lee has a great comment, but I, I, I feel the need to bring something up before Lee says this great comment that he just said in chat. Um, this isn't anti-gun by any means. Gun bans, gun restrictions aren't going to stop this. Evil finds a way. It's not a gun problem. This is a people problem. And this is something that Pat Rogers would say all the time. It is a people problem. Um, if someone has, if someone intends on evil, evil acts, killing others, they will find a way to do it. And they'll use whatever's necessary, whatever's available to them. Um, restricting lawful law abiding citizens from having the means to defend themselves. That's just wrong. And because of some evil doers, because of their actions, that shouldn't affect the rest of the population. So I hope no one listening to this thinks that this is us saying, yeah, guns are bad because they're not clearly. Lee. Well, this is footnote number two, citing Ed Monk. Uh, Cause I learned this, this thought came from it. If the student, excuse me, if the active killer is a student at the school, they've seen the lockdown drill practiced repeatedly. So they know what the response is going to be. And I yield back to Ed for that. No, and luckily, as far as I know, we haven't seen that um, used yet, but it's, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Um, I, I was told as a teacher to gather all my kids and put them in the blind corner and pack them in there as tight as I could so that when he broke the glass in my locked door and walked in, he couldn't. The only way that we could have made it easier is if we lined up and the first student put the, the barrel of his rifle to the chest to make it easier. But the, and that's exactly what they did in Sandy Hook, um, gathered them all in the corner in the second classroom he went into. And how easy could it be? And most of these active shooters are not very good with guns. That's why we see a lot of malfunctions and troubles reloading. But if you pack 20 people in a corner, um, it's hard to make his job easier than that. But that's what schools are doing. These are people with master's degrees and PhDs that are making policies. And here's, so I was in the military. I was an armor officer uh, in units and with tanks. So my, my first assignment as a brand new lieutenant, I was a tank platoon leader. So I'm in charge of four tanks. I'm on one of those tanks. I'm a tank commander on one of my four tanks. I've got a sergeant and two privates also on my tank. So if I make a mistake, either through ignorance or bad guessing or laziness that causes my tank to get hit by the enemy, I pay the same price as that private does. Even though I outrank him by quite a bit, I pay the same price. And what we have in the schools is the superintendents, the school board, and the state legislatures are all making the policies and the laws, and the principals and faculty and students are paying the price for it. They're, they don't, they're, they have to pay the price, but they don't make the rules. And that's a problem that we have. Speaking of, in my state, the state law gives the school board final authority over the school safety plans the sheriff or the chief of police, whichever applies, 
you know, they, they can make suggestions, they can make requests, but they have no legal authority to mandate anything such as being given keys to the building. Um, you know, the legislature, that's where they seem to put the, the authority for the response plans. You know, maybe if, the, if they mandated that law enforcement actually had an active voice and authority in that situation, we could mandate some things that would change. Um, but also have to take into account, you know, some things that can be dealt with architecturally as we build new facilities. My county has schools that are still in service uh, that were built in the 50s. In the county where I grew up, a, the school building that my father graduated from in 1955 is still in use. You know, as they retrofit those buildings and, 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 and modify them, you know, they can make some changes. The high school that I graduated from, the building opened in 77. Um, you know, if we're building something now, we can build security measures into the place, but all right. How do, you, how do you retrofit these old buildings if it's even possible to make some of the architecture? And it's not cheap. That money's got to come from somewhere, and that goes to political will, which goes back to Ed's first comments, is everybody gets all hot when this stuff takes place. And then by the time the next legislative session rolls around, it's gone. Yeah, and unfortunately, money is not usually the issue. So with, with middle school and high schools, almost always it's a student. So any hardening of the outside of the building that we do is probably only going to have a negative effect of delaying the cops and the ambulances, people from getting inside. And, and yeah, after Uvalde, after these, we get our hair catches fire and we, we man, the checkbooks come out. Um, one of the schools I've worked with within a month of the principal was so proud, showing me all these new locks that they got emergency funding, and they researched, and you know these locks could take hits from nuclear tip weapons and still you know not give way. And but they were put on doors with glass panes. And when I asked the principal, you don't you don't think he would just shoot through that glass? The principal just stared at me like, well that wouldn't be fair. That would that's not playing by the rules. And he was so proud that they they paid to rip up the four foot chain link fence and replace it with a six foot chain link fence uh, to keep the kids safe. And you really think that's going to keep him from coming here or keep the victim count low? But we just we want to spend money. Um, we think we did something if we spend money. We're not attaching it to the goal, and and sometimes we don't even have a goal. But I, I urge people when they go to the school board and talk to their principal and say, if a, if a shooting happens here, God forbid, the shooter shows up here, um, what's what's the victim count we can expect? And the school leaders will look at you like, what do you, what are you asking me for? And, and there's the problem. They're, they're taking no leadership in this. They're not taking responsibility for it. I was at the National School Safety Conference last year's, uh, I think it was June, and there was a panel of uh, superintendents from all across the country, like 15 of them. And I remember one said, listen, stopping the active shooter is not our job. That's why we have cops. That's why we have law enforcement. And that's the reason we keep getting 20, 30, and 40 people shot. They're not taking responsibility for this. And, and ask them, if an active shooter starts here, how long will that attack last? How long will you allow it to last? And they don't have an answer. They might say, well, I would hope not long. Well, hope is not what you're here for. Um, we don't pay leaders to hope. 
we pay leader, we play leaders, we pay leaders to plan, to war game and come up with the best possible plan to end it as soon as possible. But they're not doing that. And that's why we keep getting 20, 30, and 40 people shot. The cops will show up and the cops will stop it eventually if it doesn't stop itself. But the numbers are going to be rugged. So when I talk to cops or schools or anybody, I tell them, I don't want the police to be the solution to this. Yeah. I want you to call 911 because we need ambulances and cops heading this way. But I would like the attack to be over in the first 30 seconds and us be treating the casualties when the first ambulance and the first cop gets here because my goal is always single-digit victims, zero to nine, and that is attainable. But the only way to do it mathematically is to end it in the first 30 seconds. It's not a guarantee, but the odds are really good. If you end it within 30 seconds of the first shot, you'll have single digit victims. And you that cannot be done by someone you're gonna call. That has to be done by the people there. And cops are very rarely there close enough to hear or see the first shot when it starts because active shooters are just a subset of violent criminals and violent criminals generally don't start their attacks right in front of a uniform cop. So my goal is I tell them, I want the cops to do the best they can when they arrive, but I hope to God cops are not the people that stop this because it's, it's odds are the numbers are going to be extremely ugly if they are. And, uh, I, was, I was just going to quickly say, I think it might not be a bad idea to address why your expectations are good expectations in a situation like this, there's the po- there is truly a possibility we cannot avoid a fatality. That is just the way the world works. But I think the sooner we recognize that, and people are going to die. If the entire United States was completely disarmed, okay, there are certain companies or company countries where that is the case, and people are still killed by evil. Just like what Ed just said. I, I think that's I think that's super important to reiterate. Don't make police the police can't be the solution. Police can be cleanup if it's extended. Police then will interact, but it would be nice in perfect world if the solutions were. I, I, I wish I knew what they were, but it didn't involve. It could be stopped before it started. That's not possible. But we can do is mitigate. We can lessen the impact maybe staff carrying and training just just the thought alone could make someone think twice about doing that kind of violence lee i wholly agree with the staff carrying and training but you know, again my state law gave that decision authority to the schools and to go with you know his example of the glass well he as a tactical guy he walked up and saw that problem as soon as he looked at it and you have people that are making decisions that just don't understand those realities uh because the most they know from a gun came from what they've seen on tv or movie uh and they don't understand those things and now I also want to be clear that some of the people, probably most of the people that work on the school side of this are really good people with good intentions. They just don't know. They just don't understand the problem. And God bless them for a certain point for not seeing the evil in the world to the level that we do. And a point of example of an assistant principal at one of the schools in my county, great guy, great guy. 
We responded to a potentially bad situation at the school in which he worked. And as I slid to a stop in the parking lot, I noticed that traffic cones had been placed in front of the school. I thought, that's odd. Those aren't usually there as I ran through the front door. Later, I learned that he had gone into the parking lot and put those cones out thinking with the thinking that if someone was actually coming to the school to do something, when they got to the parking lot, they would see those cones and realize they couldn't drive through there and it would divert them to somewhere else. Okay, we can laugh at that. But we can also kind of look at the guy put himself in, yeah, you know, he thought there was a bad guy coming there and he ran out there trying to do what he could do, but he doesn't under, just didn't understand. Yeah. And I, while I'm very critical of the fact that the law has in my state has put the decision, I think in the wrong hands, we also have to acknowledge that, yeah, you know, those people may very much mean well, they just don't understand the problem. Yeah. And so I mentioned that I had a career in the military in combat arms. And, and I said, when I first started getting into this, I didn't, really didn't think that mattered because they never trained me how to fight an active shooter. They never trained me really on active shooters. But it, it took me too long after doing this and speaking with people to realize that really it, 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 my career plays a huge part in this because what we train combat arms army officers to do is to look at a threat and a potential threat and define it. Yes. What are its capabilities? What are its weaknesses? What are its weapon systems, tactics, techniques, and procedures? What are its most likely courses of action? And once we define the threat the best we can, we define the environment in which we expect to fight that threat. And then once we've done that, we, we with given that information, we create the best plan we can to defeat and stop that enemy in the shortest amount of time with the fewest amount of casualties. And then we create a training plan to train our fighters how to implement that plan. And that's exactly what we need to bring to this. And so when I would run into business leaders, church leaders, and school leaders, who they had no, they'd never planned on planning for and, and creating violence. Planning for violence and casualties is what the Army does, but the, they, they don't. I, I was at a college, I don't want to say which one, in a university, and during a break, a professor, a PhD professor came down and said, you know, you were in the military, right? And I was like, yeah. And he said, but I mean, y'all didn't actually go into your operations expecting and planning for casualties, did you? And th that's when I was blinking. Like, well, of course we did. Yeah. Of course we did. We, just, we, don't, we don't plan to fight an enemy that wants to kill us and has weapons and just say, Let, let's hope none of us get shot. Uh, that's not adult. That's not leadership. So it took me a while to overcome that. Um, Parkland, uh, if you can watch a Netflix video called Parkland Inside Building 1200, I think so. And in that, a, te a teacher on one, in one of the three classrooms he shot into on the first floor, they interview her. And she said, I'm crouched behind my desk. She's watched several of her students get shot through the door. And she assumes he's going to come in. And I, I would have too. Um, and she said, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I finally decided when he comes in, I'm going to stand up and say, we love you because who could shoot somebody that, that loves them? Well, he could. And that's, that's an example of not understanding how evil. So a, a saying is schools are planning for the Geico lizard, but it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex that's going to show up. So there's two huge problems with that, with what that teacher did one. And it's partly her fault, but mostly the school's fault 
she's crouching behind her desk trying to come up with a plan. And we all know our brain doesn't work well when we're under that kind of stress. That's not the time to write a symphony because we're not creative. We should have already had a plan with one, two, or three options. And all we had to do under that type of stress was push button A, B, or C. But she didn't have that. And so that's partly her fault, but that's mostly the school's fault. And then when he did come, well, he didn't come in, but her plan, if he did, that she came up with under that stress was, I'll just tell him I love him. Um, so we, and I'm sure she's an intelligent woman because you can't teach school and not be intelligent, but they're just not understanding the evil that, that's coming into. Um, in San Ysidro, the McDonald's, a, a man stood up and tried to, hey, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And he got shot 14 times. Um, the, the principal at, at Sandy Hook was the first person to verbally confront him, and she's the first person that got shot for that. So the, I've, it's something that's been kind of new in the last six months for me. Um, people will call me like schools, and they'll say, Ed, come talk to us and tell us how to keep our kids safe. No, I can't do that. Um, I can't tell you how to keep your kids safe. I, I think I can show you how to increase your security and lower your risk, but I can't tell you how to keep your kids safe. And what's really dumbfounding is that Oh. Your your audio just from me just died. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you you still sound distant. Okay, but they'll call me and say, "Ed, come tell us how to de-escalate and talk these people down." It's like, no, I, no, that that happens like once or twice. It's it's. A, I'm not going to come talk to you about something that's got a five percent success rate. But that's us wanting it to be an easy, nonviolent answer when the answer clear to us the answer is unbelievably ruthless immediate counterattack if we want a low number if if we want to do something that has a mathematical expectation of it, it's an immediate ruthless violent counterattack and uh, some people aren't prepared for that yeah well and just like you guys both discussed in my experience so i was a school resource officer for a couple years um and i worked with wonderful wonderful people the, the, the school staff were amazing. The administration were great people that I really enjoyed spending time with. The teachers themselves were absolutely fantastic. I love running into them, uh, run into them in a grocery store, and we usually stop and talk for a while. Great people. They have a different mindset than us, and they see the world differently than us, and I'm glad that they do. But yeah, it does. It might take some maybe sharing this kind of a conversation to shed some light on this. Is, see, these are some of the realities of what we're facing. Um, the fact, though, that also that I really like that um, you mentioned that some of the schools have contacted you. At least they're trying to do something proactive. I, I, I got to give them credit for that. Well, it, again, very little yeah. exposure compared to the nationwide. But yeah. I, I've been contacted since Uvalde, um, much more by private schools than by public. Um, a lot of times, not always, a lot of times the, the public schools are like, listen, state requires us to do some active shooter training. We heard you'll do it. Come do it. Yep. It's just to check the block for them. But they're, they're either they're, they don't want to change or they're higher up school board superintendents. They can't make the changes that would make a difference. Now, listen, I know. 99 point something percent of schools are not going to have armed staff. I don't agree with that, but I, I, currently that's the situation. 
But there are things that schools can do, even if they're going to be unarmed, that I truly believe will, will lower the victim count much lower than if they didn't do it. And so I show them examples of unarmed fighting against active shooters. It's not nearly as successful as with a gun, but there are several successes of both students and faculty doing it in schools as well as other places. So we got to do something other than lockdown drill, cower in the corner, get under the table and wait our, our turn to die. Yeah. Um, we can teach them. If you just show them, give them permission to do it, show them to do it, show them how to do it. Now we're not going to give jujitsu and, and classes, but we can show them that by attacking him as he's coming through a door takes away so many of the advantages that he has in the gun. And if we show them what reloads and malfunctions look like, that is unbelievably valuable because a lot of these active shooters, again, they're not Navy SEALs, they're not John Wick, they're punks that brought dad's gun to school and they don't really know how to use them. So there's an unbelievable amount of malfunctions that take them a long time to fix or they have to go to their second gun or they, they can't shoot anymore. So Sandy Hook, the little six-year-old in the first classroom, recognized a reload and recognized this at a window of time, and he chose to run. Seattle Pacific University, the senior realized when that shooter started to reload, that was a window of opportunity to attack, and he successfully attacked me. If I'm unarmed and I make a decision to attack a violent criminal who's got a gun, what better time to do that than when his gun is not working? And so just, but people without gun experience don't know what a reload or a, a malfunction looks like. So you simply show them. And with teachers, what brings the light bulb on is you show, you, you remind them of the agony and the mental stress of a stapler that gets jammed up. And what do you have to do? You have to mechanically pry the thing open and then pry out all the staples, completely reload the staples and close it. And that's, they explain to them, that's what's going on in that gun. Just like that stapler is not working, the gun's not working, just like it's going to take time to fix it, and his attention is going to go to fix that, not to you. That's a great time to either flee or to fight. But if they don't have that knowledge, they can't do it. Lee, what do you have? Oh. Just, you know, agreeing with everything the Ed's having to say on that. Um, and I think it just reiterates the overall theme of that if we're waiting for the cops to get there, we're just exacerbating the immediate problem and allowing the death toll to continue or injury toll to continue to rise. And then as unfortunately as we have seen, the uniform response has not always been ideal. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we can't not acknowledge that and recognize it and understand it. But at the same time, there have also been some tremendously great uniform responses and they have not been covered in the media whatsoever because there's not, you know, you don't have the sensational headline. I know what the same week that one of the, one of the big ones took place, uh, there was a SWAT cop in Maryland that had requested assignment as the SRO because by God, nobody's going to kill a child on my watch. And he took down a bad guy as he came through the door. And there was like a little blip and that you had to kind of be in the know to see that news coverage because there wasn't any real news that the gun media covered it, but the, the general media didn't. Um, the response to the deadly force attack has to be immediate. And effective, and every second that it delays, 
we're just adding to the body count. And if the cops don't come until the phone call comes, we're in delay. Um, I can say from my administrative days, when some of these incidents took place, the immediate call was for SROs, you know, school resource officers. Um, we put together several different plans and packages and presented them to the school system. Um, yeah, if you decide politically that SROs are what you want, this is what's going to cost to implement those plans. And we provided a plan for a deputy in every school. We provided plans for deputies for every cluster. We provided plans for deputies for, you know, the high schools and high schools and middle schools, et cetera, you know, just so they would have all the options and the information uh, to look at in those things. Uh, it, it's a matter of what is you know, prioritized politically. Yeah. And again, my sheriff couldn't implement any of that on his own. Other people had to make that decision to implement it. And, you know, while I think SROs on the campus that will immediately respond to a situation and deal with it will reduce counts. But the fact that the SROs on campus in and of itself is not going to reduce because if he's out behind the high school, the gym, opening the gate for the sod delivery that's coming in, because, hey, Officer Bob, can you run out here and do this for us? He's not where the active shooting takes place. I think Ed's got some really good uh, suggestions on where all the armed people need to be. Um, if the deputy is or the officer is out directing traffic in front of the school, they're not where they need to be. Yeah. So I, I, some of the points that you just brought up, I think it's important to clarify some concepts. As a former SRO, when people hear... SRO, they immediately think of, well, these are going to be the cowards. They're going to run away. Okay. How many times has that happened? Okay. Dot, dot, dot. Typically also people think SRO, that's the guy that's retired on duty and he's super out of, out of shape and he doesn't train and he's uh, officer friendly and won't lift a finger uh -huh. to do anything. That's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So where I live, I'm in Northern Utah. The sheriff's office, so let's see here, I want to say a, a larger agency near me and also the sheriff's office have a lot of schools that they cover and their SROs are typically SWAT guys. They are very proactive. And also those, those uh, SRO positions are almost coveted because it seemed like anytime you're an SRO, you usually promote afterwards because you're doing such a damn good job. I think the sooner the public realizes, you know, this is an opportunity. SRO can be an awesome opportunity. Um, and it can be, it can be a position to help people. If, if the public would put pressure on their local agencies to make sure, well, yeah, let's make sure that SRO he's, he's going to be able to help. They're going to be a defender. When I became an SRO, one of the first things I did was I went through Darcy because I thought, you know what, where I, I, I might be the the line of the, the only line of defense until backup shows up. I kind of want to I want to get some more training. So I went to this counterterrorism school, which counterterrorism, active shooter, same stuff. Bad guys, evil shooters. Um, personally, after going through, uh, as an SRO, after going through that, my apprehension 
uh, was lessened greatly because I had a better understanding of this is what's necessary. These are the skill sets that are needed. And this is the, this is the big picture and this is how to respond, especially as a single officer. Um, as an SRO, I felt it was, there's a, a sacred responsibility and duty. Absolutely. And I don't say that in jest. I don't say that sarcastically. There truly is because everyone in my community is counting on me to protect their kids. And I think for 99.9% .9 of the population where I live, people's kids are their most valuable <laughs> possession. It's their most valuable thing. Well, you know, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. There's 18,000 ways of doing things. Yeah. There's almost, if you count corrections officers, there's over a million cops. I think if you take them out, it's somewhere 700, 800,000 cops. Um, and you're going to, it's going to be different from agency to agency and officer to officer. Uh, if they're seeking that position because they want to be there because they want to be the one that addresses the evil as it walks through the door, or if they're in there because it's Cush a preferred job. shift, yeah. job. it's not. Yeah. Now I can tell you that, you know, early in my career, you know, say his years zero to five, maybe even 10. If the boss had come, Weems, we need you to be the SRO and you're going to stand here and I'd have filled out an application somewhere else. Yes. Year 23. Oh, hey, Weems, sign me up. You know, you mean I don't have to work wrecks and I get to stay out of the weather? And yeah, yeah. And, and it's different because I, my, I'm past the I want to go out and catch every bad guy point. But I would be perfectly fine now with my sole job is you're going to stop somebody from coming here and killing these children. And you know there is that there, there's a, a county near me that has a school police that they will not even accept your application or process it unless you have ten years on the job. Hmm. Uh, now, and it was that school police agency was kind of one of the man. If you can get on with them, you've got it made. Well, they had a political change in that county, and during all the defund the police, it's like we really don't need this agency. Hmm. I don't know what their current status is, but you know, all of that political win changes, you know, cause during the defund the police stuff that was big, how many schools kicked SROs out of their schools? And then now after Uvalde is, Oh, we need cops in every school. Again, we love you. You're our favorite. And it, it is such a pendulum and it's such a political priority issue and we could deal with a lot of these issues if we would just actually effectively address them but people want the issue politically they don't want the solutions well part of this is addressing and recognizing what the problem is mm -hmm. there is violence there is evil yeah. and it cannot be avoided you know during one of the upticks in officer violence uh, violence against officers a couple of years ago uh one of our citizens who was just a force of nature uh, came to me wanting to do something to help the officer what can i do to help and we we got our brains together and we came up with a funding plan excuse me for a second a funding plan to buy trauma kits for every deputy that morphed into she got a grant of $41,000 from the local trauma center. Ooh. And not only did every deputy get a trauma kit, every deputy got two trauma kits. 
And then we bulk stored 20 trauma kits at every school in the county. Wow. They're in two bags of 10. We got permission from the school to come in and train medical staff and stop the bleed. And their job is in the event of a mass casualty incident, they're to bring those bags of trauma kits to the wow. scene. So we, we know we've got 20 at every school. The state loved it so much that they stole it from me and didn't give me credit for it, but that's okay. We got the trauma kits in the schools. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, I did hear a rumor. I don't know if it's true. What was this about? Texas wasn't doing that, but they did do some kind of a DNA. So you can at least identify the bodies. It's probably a complete hoax, but I thought, huh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's real. I'm completely unfamiliar. I'll yield to Okay. No, but when I talk to schools, I, I tell them you need, to, you need to be doing the trauma training. And yeah, the chances of an active shooter are like this, but that's just a life skill. Your students yes. and faculty are more likely to use that in a traffic accident Amen. years down the road or maybe in a job. So, so that's not just wasted time and money for the active shooter thing, but that's just ought to be taught anyway. And on the SROs, I, a lot of schools, when I'm scheduled to come talk to them, they'll say, hey, we're, you know, we're interested to hear what you have to say, but just so you know, we have an SRO. So Oh, we don't need you. It's okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Well, let me show you this list of 10 schools that were attacked by students of the school who, who knew there was an SRO there, but attacked anyway. And several of them have high victim counts. My brother uh, retired from law enforcement. His last eight years, he was our high school's resource officer. And he is a master level IDPA shooter. So if there's any listeners that doesn't know what that means, it means he's, he's pretty darn quick, fast, and accurate with a handgun. But he would tell the school, if I'm in the parking lot when it kicks off in the gym, it's going to be a long time before I get down there with my skills to deal with. If it starts in the cafeteria when I'm in the front office, I won't hear it. So it's going to take a long time. If I'm in the cafeteria when it starts in the front office, I'm not going to hear it. So you're, you're going to get, even though you have a cop that is skilled and I, you know, brave and will respond somewhere on the property. That's not good enough. Um, Santa Fe had two cops, two resource officers in a high school, and they were in the cafeteria. Can't fault them for that because that's statistically the most likely place. Well, that's not where it started. It started in a different part, and they didn't hear the shooting. The reason they started getting over is the uh, can you still not hear oh, me? Oh, now you're back. Yeah, so I think after a duration, you talk, and then it just, oh, wow. yeah, it's a so, hardware software issue. It's not your voice. Yeah, your voice sounds I, good. I'm not saying SROs don't have yeah. uh, value, and they do, and there is some proven deterrent effect of shooters saying, I'm not going there. Uh, one of the reasons the Greenville guy went to the elementary instead of the middle school, one of the reasons was the middle school had an SRO. But it is, it is not a guarantee. It's not it's not the problem solver. Um, and even here in Arkansas, if you go through a bureaucratic nut roll, we, we can have armed school staff, but it, it's it's a bureaucratic nut roll. And many of the schools that do it don't do it right. It's it's a good old boy network. It's a few, a few guys and gals up in the administration building not in the cafeterias, not in the hallways, not on the playground. So they're not using the history and math to, to have the people located. The, the critical thing is if someone is present, which I define as they're close enough to hear it or see it, not that they're somewhere on the property, somewhere in the building. They're close enough to hear it or see it. 
they're armed, and they're willing to act aggressively. When those three things happen, we have a 90% success rate at single-digit victims. So we have to have people located. If, if you're going to have armed people at school, they have to be spread out so that you have the greatest chance that at least one of them um, will hear it or see it and can act aggressively and stop it fairly quickly. And then Lee's point about he's right. If, if cops do even suggested that they did something wrong and we have a high victim count, that'll be in the news for three months straight. If cops do amazing brave stuff and because of that, the victim count is low, it'll get talked about one time and then never again. So when I, when I talk to cops, you, you got to show them the good and the bad. We got to show them the bad, but it's not enough to tell somebody don't do A, B, C, and D. Well, okay, well, what should I do? So when I, I think out of all the cops I've talked to, maybe three or four have seen the video from Antigua High School in Wisconsin where the cop, it was their problem, and the cop was out in the parking lot. Is it dark? And the kid shows up with a rifle and starts shooting fellow students leaving the prom with a rifle, an SK rifle. And the cop doesn't say, well, all I've got's a pistol. I'm completely out. He draws his pistol and advances on the guy and shoots him. We have to show, our, okay, don't do X, Y, and Z, but look at these heroes. It can be done. Mimic them. The small city in North Carolina. When there was only one young cop on duty on a Sunday morning, when a nursing home, a guy went into the nursing home and started shooting people. He was the only one on duty. When he showed up, he didn't say, I'm going to call for backup and bring on a trooper and a deputy. He went in and shot them. So we have to show them these. Andy Brown at Fairchild Air Force Base, so, you know, got there as fast as he could and shot the guy. We have to show them what right looks like, not just what wrong looks like. Amen. Lee, it kind of looks like you wanted to say something. No, I was looking through the law that um, governs allowing school personnel to carry in, in my state. Let me switch back over to the other screen so I can read it. Yeah. Uh, just for reference, this is official code of Georgia annotated 1611 130.1 the 2021 version and it just gives several definitions of buses school functions school safety zones and everything and also it gives the disclaimer that this law does not require the schools uh, to, to approve training uh, but just as the training of approved personnel prior to authorizing such personnel to carry weapons the training shall at a minimum include training on judgment judgment pistol shooting marksmanship and review of current laws relating to the use of force of self-defense and or others uh, provided and it goes on to some other things that the school does or the board may in lieu of that approve people with prior military or law enforcement service and the policy must uh, also approved weapons, et cetera. Um, you know, I don't know, and I don't want to be, I'm, I don't have military experience. So I don't want to speak, be kill of that. Uh, I have, one of my grandfathers was a combat veteran of World War II. My step-grandfather repaired aircraft in the Navy. 
Yeah. One of those was probably prepared to deal with evil coming through the door. The other one, although he spent, you know, my grandfather served for World War II, and then he was called up for the Air Force Reserve in Korea where he cut meat in Puerto Rico in a kitchen. And the other grandfather spent a 30-year, step-grandfather spent a 30-year career in the Navy repairing aircraft. Yeah, one of them was probably prepared for dealing with evil coming through the door. The other one, maybe not so much. At least because based on his military experience. And, you know, not all law enforcement experience is equal either. And uh, we can sit here and we can look at this law and say, well, it's got all these shortcomings and everything. Well, guess what? Prior to the passage of that law, it was illegal for the schools to allow their personnel to carry on. So at least we got to the point of, there is a mechanism for allowing it. Um, I am not aware pre Uvalde of any school system in the state allowing their staff to carry on school property. Now that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm saying I'm not aware of it. Um, immediately post Uvalde, one of the largest school districts in the state did come out and said they're going to allow their staff to do so. Now, I don't know what the status of that is. And then in the wake of that announcement, a couple of other school systems announced it, but we have 180 something school systems in the state. Okay, so there's no uniformity across, across the board. You know, one of the great things about our American political system is the diffusion of governmental authority so that we don't have one single entity that can just take over. And by the way, folks, the federal government is not allowed to do this under our constitution. One of the bad things about our system of government is the diffusion <laughs> of so many things. That's right. <laughs> over, I was the chief deputy of the sheriff's office and I could not mandate school safety measures, but the school principal could. And you know, one of the arguments I used to have with an assistant superintendent was, I don't tell you who's gonna be assigned to teach math in which classroom they're going to be in. Don't tell me how to do the sheriffy things. <laughs> and for the most part, we stayed out of each other's way, but occasionally it came, you know, it came to a head. And there is, now everybody wants, this is the answer. And a lot of these questions, there is no single authority that can implement the answer. Well, and, if, if there were an answer, we'd already have it. Yeah, and some of my our beloved beloved people in the gun industry that have been on this podcast, you know, we're on Facebook with putting out the answer. And I'm sitting there saying, Article One, Section Eight, that's a no no. The federal government may provide grants to fund. The federal government may provide guidelines that if you don't meet the guidelines, you don't get federal school funding, but the federal government has no stick. It only has a carrot when it comes to these matters. Article 1, Section 8 lists, I think it's 18 things that the federal government has direct authority to do. And the 10th Amendment limits the federal government to those 18 things. Well, everything else is a carrot. You know, though, just, yeah. the use of that carrot has been able to put the federal government in a position where they can influence. Oh, yeah. They can influence. Cause you, yeah, because you need to have these steps in order to get that carrot. It can influence. Oh, well, the the 
mandated per, per se BACs on DUI. You know, that's a federal requirement to get federal highway dollars. If you didn't lower your BAC to 0.08, you just wouldn't get your federal highway funding. Well, for years, I think it was Louisiana just said, screw you, we're not going to do it. Mm. Well, they didn't get any state highway dollars. But there's no stick. There's only a, only a carrot. The whole George Bush era, no child left behind, is completely voluntary. Your crime stats, everybody, every media wants to re report what the FBI uniform crime report says is this is true and accurate reporting in America. Yeah, about half of the law enforcement agencies actually report their crimes, yeah. crime stats to the FBI. Federal government has no authority to make a state or local agency do it. So they don't. Yeah. There is no true accurate crime reporting in the United States. There's... And in the you know in the wake of some of these high profile instances, you get some lip service, and as Ed said earlier, you get committees appointed to study everything. Well, they study, but nobody ever has the authority to implement effective solutions, at least not unilaterally. No. Well, I remember years ago, at least ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, our agency was able to take advantage of a federal grant for communications equipment handheld radios, vehicle radios. In order to get that, every every officer needed to go through all this FEMA training and all this and that and NIMS can influence NIMS. NIMS. That's what it was. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, FEMA NIMS, it's all the same. It's all silly. And in 2022, we still don't have the capability to talk to each other on the radio. Really? Because we locally for me, we we have Regions upon regions and a whole, though if power goes out, we're dead. Internet's gone, to, we have nothing. For me to talk to the nearest nearest county, I have to switch to a different bank of channels on my radio completely. We have A bank, C bank, and A, mm -hmm. B, and C banks. And for me to talk to the neighboring county, I have to switch to from A bank, to, I think it's B bank, and then roll up and down my dial to get to the channel in which mm -hmm. they're on. Um you know, because the federal government came down because the FCC does control the airwaves and said all agencies have to go to narrow banding and all that kind of stuff. Well, one county, which we used to could talk to on the old system, went with a completely different narrow band than what we did. And nobody can talk to them anymore because they did their own thing. They're on an island. We're part of a multi-county solution, but we still have to go up and down the dial and meet people. So this works perfectly with what we're discussing. Active shooter, mass casualty incident, mm -hmm. all hands on deck, every agency come and help us. Okay, what if not all the agencies are on the same page with communication? How does that work? Not well. No. Um, we offered to pay for uh, the troopers that worked our county. You know, Georgia State Patrol, we offered to pay for their radios to have our channels on it so that they could do it. But someone in, in headquarters had control over that and, and getting it all, the, the logistics ever worked out was almost impossible. And I still don't know if it's ever actually been worked out. So my solution was we just gave the troopers handheld radios from our county. Cool. Uh, now, 
hopefully they've been swapped back and forth. And, and again, I've been out of that position yeah. for a year and a half. I don't know what the current status of all that is. Uh, but like for one of the guys that was always in our county, here's one of our radios. And he has responded to uh, incidents in the county because of hearing that radio. Uh, if they're going to work a wreck, we have to call their dispatch who calls the yeah. trooper who does that, you know, like our dispatch has to call them on a landline phone yeah. and really that kind of stuff. We, we, then everybody has to switch to channels to talk to each other if they're going to do that. If it's that complicated for a wreck, how are we going to coordinate that in a situation where, where people are actively dying? Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, I don't know if it's common knowledge where I live, if there were, if there was an active shooter school shooting in my town or in one of the neighboring towns in the county, the odds are all law enforcement that's on duty, there's a good possibility everyone is going to show up and people are going to be called at home and say, hey, this is going on. You need to come out. They're going to get called out. Um, the the response isn't limited to the only the agency where the school resides. Let's talk about that response. So people have a good understanding of this is why this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. So going back to Columbine, what were the lessons? The, so actually, before we go to the lessons, what were the standard operating procedures for Columbine? Because I think Columbine was one of those incidents that helped kick off uh, a change in our mindset. Ed? Well, yeah, I got into law enforcement after Columbine, but every active shooter event training uh, in law enforcement since I've been in is like Columbine changed the paradigm. We're no longer going to wait outside and form a perimeter. We're going in. Well, and I have seen some progress in law enforcement. The only two places I've seen fairly decent progress is law enforcement and churches. Um, but still, everybody doesn't get the memo. So, you know, you had Binghamton, New York, almost exactly to the day, 10 years after Columbine, and the chief of police ordered his uh, cops not to go into the building. And as John Benner, the owner of TDI, always says, you know, in 1984, we had Senior Sidro McDonald's, and he would always say, that should have been our Columbine. Hmm. And no cop went in there until a sniper finally got him 80 minutes down the road. He said, why didn't we wake up then? Uh, instead of waiting for Columbine. Well, I think sometimes with schools, we get a little more energetic. Yeah. Um, so we, with their have again, it goes back to what Lee brought up and I chimed in on about their cops have done a lot better, but when the one here and the one there that doesn't get the memo, uh, doesn't follow through, then that gets all, um, uh, the body camera off of one of the deputies at Parkland, um, no cop has gone into the building, but they're already talking about blocking off roads and forming a perimeter instead of ordering people to go into the building. Um, that's what we got to do. When I talk to cops, again, what I would like is for the attack to be stopped by the people there so quickly, it's a very small problem to deal with. But I, not counting on, I tell them, you know, there can be too many cops. Yes. So, um, Lieutenant Del Vecchio was his name, a lieutenant from the Connecticut State Police, gave an unbelievable detailed presentation on the Sandy Hook thing. And he said, cops self-deployed from other states. Now, Connecticut's a small state, I grant you that, but cops just, you know, with the right heart, my God, I'm going to go help them, just got in their car and headed that way. So they can say, oh, good, more cops. Uh, maybe not. What does that do? It clogs up the road, it clogs up the radio transmitters, it clogs up the hotel rooms, and 
clogging up the roads means ambulances can't get in and ambulances can't get out. Same thing, um, the same sheriff as Parkland, the same county, Broward County, for the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting. According to his own report, 2,000 law enforcement officers showed up for that active shooting that, that lasted less than a minute. The shooting lasted less than a minute, but it's, it's in such a congested big Miami area, 2,000 cops showed up. And what did they do? They drove as far as they could mechanically drive, stop, get out, lock their car, and run in. Car after car after, so ambulances couldn't get in and ambulances couldn't get out. Um, Uvalde, small rural, I forget how many cops were there, but it was, it was way too many. Santa Fe, I think what the cop in the conference said was over 300 showed up in the first hour. So you need to kind of go through and do your assessment. You know, large agencies, huge agencies can probably handle it themselves by just taking away from others. Small agencies like mine with less than 30 sworn officers, it is gonna devastate us. It's going to add, so we have to have outside help, but we need to control it. We need to have a place for them to go. We need to know when they come in because that can also cause problems when uh, cops thinking they're doing the right thing. I'm coming to help my They show up, detectives or administrators show up in civilian clothes or off-duty cops show up in civilian clothes. At least five very near misses in Sandy Hook of, of cops either off-duty or, in, you know, detectives in a plain clothes with a badge on their belt show up and pull a shotgun or a rifle out of their car and walk around. There were at least five very close calls to frat there. According to the Broward County Sheriff, the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting, some cop would have thought this comes into the airport in plain clothes. And I'm going to mess up the name Balaclava, the SWAT yeah. black mask and an AR-15 rifle. That's how a cop, an off-duty cop, self-deployed into that airport. It's a miracle he didn't get shot. Um, so law enforcement agencies need to have a plan for that. Like an agency like mine is small. We need to have already done memorandums of agreement with different agencies and kind of who are we going to call and what's their responsibility going to be and, that, and for the scene and then also other stuff, law enforcement that has to be done because we're going to be out of the fight for a while because we will be overwhelmed. One of the things that uh, the way you just described that reminded me as a veteran cop, if even if I'm responding to a medical, I'm not going to park in front of the house or where it's happening. And I'm going to let make sure medical can have a, a, a clear shot responding to various types of incidents where there's the possibility there may be gunfire. I'm going to park close enough where I can respond, but I still need to bear in mind, okay, if guns are involved, there's a good possibility medical is going to be involved at some point. And at some point we're going to have everything locked down and everything's going to be more safe to a point where medical can actually, they're no longer staging. They're actually responding. And it's going to be a little bit more important that they, they have some access. So like what you guys were saying about all these cops rushing, this is this is part of the things that people are seeing on the news that I don't think they yeah. quite understand. Lee, what do you have? Oh, I can, I can speak to two instances specifically. I do want to touch on one thing from Columbine. I have seen various stories. I don't I can't verify that it's true, but I have seen one of the things that's out there and it may be false is one of the things that hampered the Columbine response was there was a air conditioner mechanic on top of the building. 
And as the gunfire and all was erupting, he goes to goes to the edge of the building and looks over as the bad guys are shooting at the cops from the door of the building. The cops see this guy on top of the building and they're taking fire. They think he's one of the bad guys. And so one of the reasons they didn't cross that open ground was they thought a guy was on the building with a rifle and that would have been suicide. That's not part of our, our thing. Um, I was working one day when two cops in the neighboring county, one was killed, one was severely wounded. Uh, suspect carjacks a, another, an innocent victim who's completely uninvolved in this whole situation, uh, crossed into our county and back into the, to the neighboring county. Cops from everywhere responded. There were hundreds of cops roaming around that county and no communication with anybody no command control, no giving out of assignments, no tracking who's doing, doing what. And at some point, several instances in that, you'd have like a tip come in and you'd have a line of cars driving in one direction, racing to, this, to where that tip was. And they would meet a line of cars racing in an opposite direction where there was a possible sighting. And they were just all crossing over. Yeah. It took a day to get all of that organized, and that ended up being a four-day manhunt. And it was pretty well organized by the fourth day, but it was chaos those first couple of days. Um, we had an incident where one of our guys just makes what he thinks is a routine traffic stop on a highway outside of one of our schools. Well, what he does not know is one of the occupants in the car is an escapee from a juvenile facility. Mm. And as soon as the cars come to a stop, those guys bail and run into the woods next to this school. Well, we all respond. The school goes in the you know, traditional lockdown mode and it's right at pickup time when all the parents are in line to pick up the schools. Well, it just so happened two of our guys were at a multi-agency canine training event nearby. They tell all the people that are at the canine event what's going on. They all respond to the scene. So we had guys from agencies that we don't have any way of talking to them or anything. They're there. Uh, ultimately, someone with a loud voice got all of those guys into a skirmish line between the school and the wood line where other guys went to the woods and, you know, and, and we're looking for the bad guys. In the middle of all this, a white Toyota Tacoma I see driving through a field and it's bounding over the bumps. And then I recognize the vehicle. It is a retired Delta force operator that lives in our County that had heard the emergency alert and he had responded to the scene. And I got on the radio with the all units do not approach the white Toyota Tacoma. Do not approach the white Toyota Tacoma. He's a good guy. Stay away from him. And I put the radio down and looked over at the sheriff and I said, they all think that was for his safety. <laughs> I'm trying, to protect, trying yeah. to protect them because he has gone in the woods and hunted down bad guys and caught them on our, on our emergency alert system that we put out. Um, you know, command and control, the city police, we have four towns in our county, but only one of them has, has a police department. They work off of our channel. So we're going to be able to communicate with them. However, we have a paging system that works with everybody that has a sheriff's office phone or the other guys that they have their own phone, they can sign up for where text messages go out. Yep. If certain events are entered into the CAD system, and uh, this computer aided dispatch for, for audience. That's right. 
And guys sitting at home will see those things hit their phone and they come as they are. Flip-flops. Yep. And it's been great because they've come in and caught bad guys dusting themselves off and gone back to whatever it was they were doing. Back to mowing the lawn. But that literally only the active shooter, one guy responded uh, in shorts and flip-flops from his lawnmower and his wife brought him his vest while he's on scene. Yep. And he puts it on, he's got it on with his shorts and his flip-flops. Uh, it's not going to be a textbook. Everybody rolls up, parked in a straight line, gets in. Uh, I can think of other instances where I personally went out and directed traffic to try to keep space open so that we could get ambulances in and I turned my back and stepped away to do something, come back in the fire trucks parked in my open lane. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all that stuff. If it can go wrong, it's going to go wrong. So using your example of the, the guys that fled mm -hmm. at, during pickup. Okay. We don't have control over the time of day or who's around mm -hmm. as someone who has worked patrol for a while. Anytime I turn on my emergency equipment. People forget how to drive. Now, incorporate that concept with, okay, cops are now all closing in on the school. The most important thing in the world is in the school right now. How are the parents, how are the, the, the bystanders going to react to that? It's going to go cra crazy. It's going to be mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together. Um, it's absolute potential chaos. So you have people that are going to, they're going to go out of their way. As we saw in Uvalde, people breaking perimeters to try to go in, mm -hmm. trying to break the perimeter uh, to go in and, and rescue their kids. And in your situation, that wasn't even necessary because the kids weren't necessarily in danger. Now, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that police response now. So... Uh. Uh, we, we get a call of an active shooter, whether there's an uh, SRO on, on site or not, police are going to respond. Currently, the, the accepted uh, plan of attack, the, the accepted tactic is initial officers, plural, go in. If there's one officer, this is kind of, some people kind of have an issue with a single officer response. Personally, if, if I'm the only person on duty or I'm the closest, I'm just going to go in, go in and track down where the issue is. Now, I'm not going to get into tactics. I'm not going to get into, okay, we're, I'm taking this, this, this. I'm going to go in as quickly as possible. I am already equipped with everything I need. Go in, back up. Hopefully, we'll come in. If possible, stop the threat right then and there. There is a point of command and control. There's a point of establishing a perimeter. There's a point where we need to have our resources and staging fire and EMS play a major part in this. People see on the news. Okay. There's a, there's a active shooter in a school. All these cops are standing around. They're stopping people from being able to go inside. What the hell's going on? Why aren't they going in and stop the problem? Ed brought up too many cops. That, that has, that definitely can be a problem. We can have a, an area oversaturated on site where the shooting's occurring. If we put all of our resources at once into an area and it turns into a prolonged engagement or a prolonged issue, what do we have for reserves if we've used up everything? Nothing. And so that's why there might be some staging. Uh, Ed, tell me, 
Tell me about command and control. How does that play a part in this whole grand scheme of things? I encourage agencies to have a book um, for for the command and control. So whoever, you know, whoever's, it may be the night guy if this thing happens at night, although that's rare. So in my perfect world, um, cops are flowing in and they almost always are in buildings. They could be outside, but cops are flowing in. They're coming from whatever direction is the most expedient, as fast as they can get there without hurting themselves or others. And they're just flowing into the building, just completely flowing, trying to get to where the shooter is. Is it unorganized? Yes. Is there a risk there? Yes. But he's shooting somebody every few seconds. So that's a greater risk. We, we as Arnhem says, we don't live in a risk-free world. So whoever's in command makes a decision at what point, given how many people have entered that building, when he says, that's enough, no one else enter, now let's do some outside stuff. Um, if, if our elementaries are really small. That may be three officers. Our high school, two stories with multiple wings, that may be 20 officers. So then we start doing the outside stuff. Then we always have a staging and what, another thing with the schools, what I encourage them to do is have aftermath teams and all but two of them don't really need a lot of training because this will happen days later. They can flip open the notebook and follow instructions, but the trauma team and the traffic team. So they have to have a team that when this thing happens, whoever is on the, the traffic team that has survived gets out there and start and takes control of traffic. And yeah, are the cops going to take it over eventually? Yeah, but I don't want the cops doing that first. I want the cops going into the building first. So they're going to go out there with the instructions. If, if it doesn't have a red blinky light or a blue blinky light, it doesn't get in. And we've got a place down there for them to go. But I'm the mayor. Yes, sir. And we're glad you're here. We've got a place for you to go down there. Well, we're the TV news. Glad you're here. But we got a place for you down here. If you're not a cop or an ambulance, you're not getting in here. The first school I did a consultancy with, uh, the superintendent, great, great guy. We're talking about this problem. And, he's, and he turns to the, they're redoing their plan. He turns to the scribe who's taking notes and he said, make, make sure we put in our plan that parents can't come. Oh, okay, type that in there, buddy, and see how that works for you. We can't, we can't type the problem away. I got two daughters in the school. I got a four-wheel drive truck similar to, to Lee's guy there. And they text me, Daddy, they're shooting at us in the school. Daddy's coming. You can't type him away. So have a place for him to go to try to make, this is managed chaos. Combat is managed chaos. And that's what we're doing here. In an idea, again, an ideal world, it'd be over before the first cop got in the building. If that doesn't happen, then as soon as the cops start flowing in there like hornets with rabies, to find this guy and put him down as soon as they can. Hopefully it will be over in a minute or two after we get cops in the building. And then as the, then we'll flow more cops in to do the, we think it's over stuff. Now we got to clear the building. That's yeah. going to take a long time, but that won't keep people from getting evacuated. You know, we can, we can do that crime scene, clear the rest of the building crap. Um, but that's the command and control flow people into that building, until we think we have enough, we don't want the building oversaturated until they take care of the problem. As soon as the problem's taken care of, treat and evacuate casualties, crime scene, and clear the building. But another part of that is, as I tell cops, take every single thing you hear with a grain of salt, whether it's from an eyewitness, a teacher, or a kid coming out of the school, or whether you hear it on the radio, because one common thing is bad info. 
old info. It could have it could have been correct at the moment the person saw it and then called nine one one and then nine one one called you. But but now it's not accurate. Or it could have just been bad. It could just be bad info. Um, it, it, very common is multiple shooters, which almost never occurs, but the reports of them happen on. So it's a guy in a blue shirt on the second floor with a shotgun. Uh, okay. That's kind of the general direction I'm heading, but it may not be. Yeah. So take everything you hear with a grain of salt. So we have officers that have entered. We have established a perimeter. Now the perimeter is also something that people might see and go like what Lee said, these guys are standing around doing nothing. If you see a perimeter set up, modern, modern, not policy, modern tactics would dictate there are already people on site on the problem, Lee. Well, yeah, if you, if you look at the videos of Uvalde, there were enough officers in the building to handle the problem in the building. So the other responding officers should have been setting up and establishing a perimeter. So that part of the response, they got right. Now we can disagree on, you know, we can say we believe they should have more aggressively address the problem. Amen. But that part they got right. Um, you know, Ed's thing about just type into the plan that parents can't come. Uh, we have a reunification plan for all of the schools in our county should an event happen, either public or private. Uh, all the schools are on board with it and are willing to assist each other. Uh, the public school buses, busing system has agreed to help transport students from the private schools. That's one thing everybody agreed on and, and, and did. And we have put out to the public. We haven't given them the details of the plan because we don't want it known that part known ahead of time. But we put out, there is a plan. Should an event happen, please don't come to your school. Yeah. We can't count on that happening. Cause it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Another thing I think is important is, is to use social media to push. Don't be there at the podium, you know, during mm -hmm. the press conference, defending, be pushing information out. Mm -hmm. And I don't think if two minutes after cops arrive, it goes out through social media and the news because you've released a media thing that, that we think the only active shooter is dealt with and when we're just, you know, making sure the school's safe, people don't have a problem with the perimeter if they hear that within the first two or three minutes. But if an hour's gone by and there's cops milling around and they're told the active shooter is still in there, that's when they start asking, why are these cops out here? Yeah. Um, they don't have visibility on what's going on inside and how many cops are inside. All they know is, why are these cops out here? It's been an hour and he hadn't been dealt with yet. Now, in your guys' opinion, what are the repercussions of someone breaking perimeter that's not law enforcement or any that's a designated responder how does it what does that do to resources what does that do to attention it's going to divert resources and it's going to divert detention and the potential repercussion is death for the person that did it yeah i understand they have the best you go push them the by world. the cop. Yeah, you go push them by the cops and go running into the building because your baby's in there. And I get it. I understand. I get, and I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to break my personal security uh, 
here, my, my person, you know, everything. I do have children. I don't reveal they're not on so you don't see them, everything. I have personally responded to what was thought to be an active shooter threat in progress at my children's school. I have felt those emotions. Okay, folks, I'm not just sitting here in my kitchen blabbing and saying, that's easy. I have stood outside my children's school on perimeter while other cops were in the building hunting for what we thought was a guy that was in there to kill people. Yeah. Okay. I was the chief deputy of the agency at the time. I could have overruled, outranked, and, and nobody but the sheriff could have told me I couldn't go in there. The entry team had already gone in. We needed people on the perimeter. That's where I went. All right. I understand your emotions of wanting to get in to your loved ones. You're not going to do them any good if you go running into the hallway and a cop shoots you and you are dead. You're not going to save your children that way. I understand the emotion. But you're creating more of a problem and a problem that potentially puts your children, your children growing up without you is going to be a big deal to them. Think of it that way. If cops respond because you enter the building and running down the hallway and that allows other children to get killed because of your actions, now, everybody's mind going to Uvalde and all the video of this cop standing in the hallway and everything we, we know for, the, or we think we know, that happened there. But as we've already said, that doesn't, you don't see the video from the situations where at all the response was uh, effective. Well, and one of, the, one of the considerations that I think about is how is the interior team going to treat you approaching or someone approaching mm -hmm. not necessarily someone listening mm -hmm. but someone approaching entry team is focused on threat is right here hey we have threat rear threat rear turning attention that way now we're pulling resources away from mm -hmm. what the immediate issue is yeah. because hey, this might be a second gunman you are complicating the problem and that's where you get the bad 911 calls or whatever because somebody else sees that going Blue in shirt, their call and, second floor. yeah yeah. Actually, it was Joey's dad, and he was going to end it because the cops were doing nothing. They were sitting on their asses outside and eating donuts. Yeah. Actually, no, the entry team actually shot the bad guy already, and it's done. Mm -hmm. um, well, like we said, in Virginia Tech, two SWAT teams in the building yeah. frantically trying to confront the guy. But the internet said, look at those cops standing around the building not doing anything. The odds are the law enforcement on duty responding are going to be better equipped and better trained anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you got your Halligan in your nightstand. Yeah. Pocket dump pictures. Don't be saying you're going to go in and end the thing because it's just not true. And by the way, you owe Gabe Suarez an apology if you're saying that. Yes, I went there. Um, 
Now let's talk about staging. Because, yeah, we don't want to use up all of our resources. Staging needs to go somewhere. So having responded to multiple multiple agency incidents that re required multiple law enforcement agencies along with a, a, a EMS and fire, having see it all, seen it all play out, it was rather cool. It was like a, it was a, a fine machine. We had units on scene. Uh, we had a staging area several blocks away. Uh, that was far enough where we could, if there was gunfire, we could respond immediately, but also we wouldn't be affecting anything in the immediate vicinity. If someone runs across a staging area, it's not cops just again, yeah, they're doing nothing. No, we need to, we need to have the resources stay behind because we might need them. EMS can't, shouldn't necessarily just go into a hot area where there's an active threat, unless they are trained, unless they, unless they're on the same page, that's probably not the best idea. So EMS isn't going to be able to respond until we have the threat taken care of for the most part. I can think of an agency where they're working on having a, a joint EMS armed EMS respond, but that's another story. That's another episode. Ed, what about uh, staging? <laughs> Well, again, the, the, the quicker we end this thing, the less staging we'll need. But yeah. what I recommend is keeping um, law enforcement and the ambulances and maybe some city vehicles, even in our staging area, have two separate areas, one for cops, ambulances, and maybe some city vehicles, and then everybody else goes to the other. Family, media, yeah. politicians, looking, whoever, Amen. they go to the other. Um, I, and this is managed chaos. It's, it's not a well-oiled football play. So... I'm a big advocate of uh, armed EMS and armed EMS going in and our, or EMS armed or not, just, you know, cops flowing into this building until it's near saturation. So ambulances show up and just the next cop that goes in, they follow and go behind them. Because um, one of the things we tell the cops until we think or know that, and again, 98% of the time, there's only one shooter until that shooter has been reported to be down, taken care of, whatever, um, cops should not be stopping to treat or evacuate casualties. Yep. Their job is to go find and shoot the person causing the problem. Um, in the time it takes them to stop and try to treat or evacuate a casualty, he can shoot 10 more. You can't patch holes faster than he can make new holes. You can't evacuate casualties faster than he can make new casualties. So your job is to go stop the madness and other people coming behind you can help fix. But again, just telling them that um, may not be enough. You have to tell them this will probably cause, you're going to have to override your human slash Christian slash moral ethical compass because the urge is, especially if they're children, especially if they're other cops or the elderly, or they're crying out and reaching out for you, begging for help like the guy in the basement at the Charleston church. Push through to the problem. I have to override that urge and go like a swarm of bees towards where you think the problem is. Once you stop, everything else gets easier. Treating and evacuating gets a whole lot easier once you do that. Um, the first cops that went into Parkland on the first floor, all but one were from Coral Springs. Um, they got there and uh, encountered Mr. Fikes, the last guy shot on the first floor in the stairwell. Two or three of that five-man entry team peeled off to evacuate Mr. Feiss outside. They shouldn't have done that. Okay. Now it didn't matter because the shooter had long left, but they didn't know that. 
um, got a video of one of the first two cops that went into the basement of the Charleston AME church. And the shooter again had already left, but they didn't know that. So they're down in this dark basement with people bloody all over the floor. Um, and a male who has been shot, who did dies reaching out saying, help me, help me. And the, the cop in the interview is like, I, I couldn't do that. My training, we thought the shooter could still be in there. That was my primary goal. And he ended up resigning in part because, and he still has trouble dealing with it in an interview. Clearly it messes with him that that guy's last moments, seconds on earth were reaching out, uh, asking for help. And the guy just walked right by. It, it, it's not an easy thing, but you know, and again, the military, uh, if, if you're attacking in the military and one of your wingman tanks gets hit, you don't divert your attention over to help them. The best thing you can do for them is to kill who shot them so they don't take another round. There's medics coming behind you to take care of you. And so that's what we just have to train our cop. You get in there as fast as you can, like a swarm of bees that are rabid going towards where you think the problem is and end it. And I would say, and I get a lot of beef for that, medics just come on in, partner up go, with the next cop entering, you just go right behind them. Uh, and is there a risk there? Yeah. Uh, but is there risk to letting people bleed out until we determine that it's safe? Yeah, of course there is. And that's also something that the medics know uh, ahead of time. That's why they're carrying damn guns. Um, I mean, medics so, in the army carry guns yeah. for self-defense, so, not for offense. Yes. Yes. Thing. So one of the things to bear in mind also with this, and this, this might, might not be understood, there's basically a, a couple terms. There's a hot zone where we have the immediate problem, the threat warm zone. There's the possibility of a threat cold zone there's no threat if we go into a school and we do not so basically our movement if we go into a school our movement is going to be dictated by information if we can hear gunfire we're going to the sound of the gun if there's no gunfire but we're getting intel saying hey we can see someone with a gun through a window or this is where they were last seen that's where we're going to go if we've gone in and we have no intel we have no actionable information there's no stimulus there's no active stimulus to move us in any direction we may start clearing things during that during the course of that we are creating warm zones that would allow uh, evacuation to occur and so essentially what we could do is uh, create a secure more secure area where we could allow people to be immediately evacuated as opposed to waiting for the the, the problem to be gone and then evacuating um so the, yeah, the if there's an active threat that doesn't mean officers are necessarily immediately in that threat unless they know where it is. And they, if they don't know where it is, they're going to have to do some searching and that changes. You have to change gears and it's not run, run, run right to the sounds of gunfire because you don't have the gunfire to go to. So you've changed from active, active hunting to now search hunt. Yeah. Lee? Yeah. And, and with yeah. responding patrol cops, that's extremely likely because they're probably getting there at the four, five, six, eight minute mark where he's either shot everybody he can find and people have run away. And so it's harder for him to find targets. So there may be long periods of time where he's not shooting his gun. Yeah, we train in what's called the rescue task force concept. Yep. Uh, well, we partner with fire rescue. And you know, we try to teach the deputies one of the if there's already guys in the building actively hunting the bad guy, and that's when you arrive on scene, you need to be teaming with medical personnel and you're their security and their protection as they go in to start treating patients in the warm zone. Yeah, you know, if there's already active, enough personnel 
hunting the bad guy, the next big thing is, you know, security for, for the rescue task force guys. We train it. Uh, fire, they're all on the same page with us in our county. Um, I've heard stories, you know, again, so much stuff gets out there on these things. You don't know what's true and what's not. That at the uh, the nightclub, was it Orlando? Pulse. Pulse, Pulse. I think it was the Orlando, that they had trained and rescued task force, but at the moment of truth, a fire commander would not allow the medical personnel mm-hmm. to go with the police. I don't know if that's true. That's just one of the things that they went out there. Um the ballistic vests that are bought for officers have a five-year warranty on them because the NIJ National Institute of Justice standards are they have to have an expiration period. Most of the companies do it at five. Well, the, the vests are still functional yeah. after that period, but you have to replace them because lawsuits. You know, you get killed wearing an eight-year-old vest, your family's going to sue they just see so they genius. Those vests are still effective. We gave a bunch of them to firefighters. We told them, telling them, hey, these things are out of date. They're probably still going to stop the bullets. If it's one that the vest would stop, they're not going to stop a rifle bullet or et cetera. But okay, so we're, that's something you can do with your outdated equipment rather than just sitting in a room rotting away or getting thrown in a dumpster somewhere, go give it to your EMTs, go give yeah. it to your, to your, to your firefighters. At least they've got some sort of protection if they're going to go into those warm zones with you. We, we, I agree with Ed saying it's going to be hard to walk past, you know, a child screaming for help or, you know, whatever, but priority one is stopping the bad guy. Priority two is then saving life. Yeah, well, because you can't save the lives until you've stopped the bad guy. Or said another way, the best trauma care is overwhelming, accurate fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's also de-escalation. And I don't say that sarcastically. All right. Um, one of the things, this is almost a quote. I can't quite remember it, but this is from uh, Richard Mason from Darcy. And again, if, if you want to go for the next level of training with this kind of stuff, uh, law enforcement counterterrorism training course is absolutely amazing. And it's just, it, yeah, absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. But um, one of the things that he discusses with his curriculum is that he's teaching people to be, ch- uh, they're basically the students or the responding officers are playing chess while the bad guys playing checkers. And especially, and, and if things work out the way they should be, our response is limiting the bad guy to exert himself beyond where he's at. So as we enter through a hallway, that hallway should no longer be accessible to him in a perfect world. And we're basically, with our response, we are closing off his options to uh, inflict more damage, more death. That is if he, if, if this, the shooter is still active, um, another aspect to consider with this for the responding officers. And this is something that I've said forever, and I'm going to repeat myself anyway. You don't already have a preconceived idea of what the bad guy is going to be. It could be male, it could be female. It could be a kindergartner. It could be a high school student. Uh, it could be a senior citizen. It could be a teacher, bad guy. Evil is evil. And if it's uh, presenting itself as an active threat, it should be put down. 
So should we shift gears just slightly? Can I yeah, just please. throw one more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, when I, when I talk to the cops, if it's a middle school or high school, it's going to be one of your kids. So you, you got to, um, you got to get right in your mind about putting your front sight or your red dot on, an, you know, Jonesboro right here in Arkansas, 11 and 13. So I show a slide with all, with the photos of these teenage kids starting at 11. Are you mentally prepared to shoot this? And so, um, in training, uh, and thank goodness they make photographic targets of, of young people with kids. And then again, in that South Carolina AME church shooting, of course, he shot in the basement and then he left. And I think the next day they caught him in North Carolina. And I've got a video from one of, one of the cops there when they, when they caught the shooter in his car. And he said, my partner's talking to him and I peek in and look at him. And this is his words. He says, it's an effing, but he used the word, it's an effing kid. So I think we got the wrong guy. But, but actually, if you understand the active shooter, that's, that's actually most likely. If you look in and see an 80-year-old woman, you should say, whoa, we may have the wrong guy. But that, even though the kid was 20, he looked like he was 14. I'm going to the kid. So if you go in and if you don't middle school or high school, all active shooters tend to be young males. But if it's in a middle school or high school, you have got to be prepared to put your front sight or your dot um, on a, on a very young looking person. And I put, people say, don't show their photos to make them famous. But if we're training people going up against them, they need to know what to expect visually. And they got that again, goes against our nature to shoot kids, but we got it. We got to know that that's probably what's going to be called for. If it's in a middle rise. Lee, anything further about our response or explaining aspects of it? Um, I think the last thing that we could cover and we can take as much time as you guys want is as a person, a responsible citizen carrying a firearm, whether you're a teacher or you're a citizen and we're not going to talk about cops because I cops are going to save the world. Clearly. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where there's an event like this occurring and due to your proximity, you may be affected. What are considerations to have? What are things to prepare for now? What are things that might not be bad to have on you at all times? Ed, what, what do you basically, what, what, what are some of the things that you bring up? Similar to cops, you, you need to kind of know what is most likely. I mean, deal with whatever happens, but know what's most likely, meaning what they're going to look like, what kind of weapons they're going to have. So yeah, they're probably going to be outgunned, but, but, but who cares? So um, wear your gun. There's one right there, you know, have your gun on you and it, wear enough gun. Okay. If, if statistically for armed citizens, the most likely entertainment package they're going to get is the mugger, what we call the parking lot experience. So a five shot J frame, a Ruger LCP, I'm not saying that's optimal, but in, in, a, in the hands of somebody willing to use it, it's adequate to stop a mugger, but I don't think it's adequate to stop an active shooter with three guns, one of which is, is a rifle. So if you're going to go prepared for that threat, and this is also for off-duty cops, if you're going to go prepared for that threat, then carry enough gun for that threat. Um, normalcy bias. Um, I think a lot of people that train with guns think we, we won't have it, but I think we would. Um, 24 years active duty in the military, lots of gunnery on tanks, one all expenses paid trip to Iraq, 15 years as a professional gun instructor, 14 years law enforcement. I've heard millions of gunshots. I'm not sure I've heard any inside of a building with no hearing range. So I think if I'm in my mold, 
or some other building and I hear the first few pop pops, I'm going to go, what the F is that? But have it filed in our brain to where anything that sounds like it could be gunfire, treat it like that until you disagree. Okay. But there's probably still going to be the first couple of what, what was that? What was that? Know the time every few seconds, someone's getting shot. So time matters. Now the, the goodness is you're probably not going to have an armed citizen responding from another location. Like you are a cop that's going to get caught. The only one I can think of would be Stephen Williford, who came from his house over to the church, but that's extremely rare. So if an armed citizen start, stops it, responds, they're probably going to be close enough to at least hear it. So there will probably be a little less confusion from them and they can get to them more quickly. But every few seconds counts. Fighting quickly, ending this quickly saves the most lives. Um, maybe do a gut check beforehand of if, if, if you're going to do this. And I know people say, not my monkey, not my circus. Well, yeah, your personal choice. If you haven't taken an oath, your personal choice. But understand what's best for humanity is someone stops this person quickly. Understand the risk for threat um, up yeah. until what, June of last year with Arvada, Colorado, I could say it's never, ever, 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 ever happened. Um, and the only reason it happened in Arvada was two extremely rare things simultaneously happened. The planets arrived, aligned. One, the cops were already there when it started. And two, um, the good Samaritan who shot and killed him picked up the shooter's rifle, which he shouldn't have done. But we think there's a couple of things you can do for frat. For frat against you, there's two things you only have to worry about one of them. Um, the only thing we think you could do, now if you could see me out there, then don't worry about something. Because a little bit your brain is working, deal with the sights and the trigger. But if you're moving in the mall, you're moving towards where you can hear the gunshot, vocalizing, where, where's the shooter, where's the shooter, where's the shooter, as you move towards where the guy is. The other thing you don't have to worry about in a lot of active shooter attacks where an off-duty cop or an armed citizen responded, people said, I just knew he wasn't the problem by how he acted. He was acting like he was stalking for the problem. He wasn't acting like the problem. It's happened several times. So just by the way you act, I think you'll be okay. But you could misidentify. There could be an off-duty cop or an armed citizen that just happened to be a little closer to you. You you were going towards the gunshots looking for what? Guy with a gun. You're around the corner. Guess what's there? A guy with a gun. Is that him? We think there's a very quick algorithm. You can run in your head and come up with three possibilities. That's him shooting. That's not him. He's one of us, or I don't know yet. Um, very quickly. One is, how old is he? He looks 15. Why is a 15 year old in your church or your mall holding a gun? Okay. The odds just happened. Um, what type of gun? Most active shooters start with a long gun, about half in schools, but most active shooters start with a long gun. And you round the corner and someone's holding a shotgun in your mall. Now, 20 minutes from now, there'll be a bunch of long guns with cops toting, but not in the first minute. Why is there somebody with a long gun in my church or in my mall or in my school? double your pleasure, you round the corner and it looks like a 16-year-old holding an AK-47. What are the odds? I think pretty quickly you can run that to ground. They don't always dress the part, but a lot of them do. Black trench coat, face mask, helmet, tactical vest. Now again, 20 minutes from now, there'll be a bunch of tactical vests in here, but, but, but not in the first minute. So we think you can read around the corner, all of that based in, again, what his actions are, 
you can make a pretty quick determination that's him. Armed citizens have never shot the wrong person responding to active shooter attacks. Cops have multiple times. Cops have shot and killed each other accidentally twice responding to active shooters. So citizens have a, a better safety track record in this. And, but I think that's in large because they're there when it starts and it's much less confusing, but, but that's good. And that's why they have a good success rate. Uh, like the kid in, uh, in Indiana. With no military or law enforcement experience at all. The same with David George, a friend of mine, a pastor from Tumwater, Washington. No, but it's, it, it's so obvious. It's stressful as hell. It'll be scary, but it's a guy holding a gun, shooting people in a public place. That, that should stand out fairly easy as far as identification. And for cops and armed citizens both, we have to stress 100% solid hits. And nowhere else, no, no training I've been, civilian, cop, or military, have they stressed 100% solid hits. Well, that's unrealistic. No, it's not. We want 100% solid hits in a crowded school or mall or church. We can't expect that if we don't demand and push for 100% solid hits on the rain. So our saying is we talk a lot about rule four. We just don't train off. We tell you about rule four, make sure your target and what's in line with your target. And we maybe we even make you make, take a test where you have to prove, you know, rules. But then we mostly put people out on an artificial sterile range where if they miss it, it goes into a wall of dirt and it's embarrassing, but it doesn't ruin anybody's life. But what happens if we miss in public and by definition, generally an active shooter, it's going to be in a crowded public place. So cops and armed citizens, they have to know their ability and their capability and their limitations with their handgun. They have to know at what, what's the maximum distance they can get 100% solid center line hits so they can work within that. And it's, it's, so if Lee knows he can get 100% guaranteed solid hits out to 20 yards with a gun he carries, but I really can't guarantee that past 12. It's not a, oh, he shoots better than me thing. It's just that I know I got to get within 12 yards. Yep. He only has to get within 20. We know the capability with my chosen gun, my chosen ammo, and we, we then we can work within it. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that in Arkansas, most the state uh, requirement is you only have to shoot back in police qualification to 15 yards. Well, the better shooters, they need to know what they can do with their carry ammo back to 20, back to 25, so they can implement that. Um, I, I've never been in an active shooter situation, but here's what I think. It's going to be as confusing as hell until you find him. And then once you find a guy in a public place shooting people, probably with a long gun, I think it's, it's still going to be stressful, but mechanically it's pretty simple. There he is. Put enough hollow points into him until he's not a problem anymore. Um, and then don't chase ghosts. Again, there's more times than not, I believe, there's false reports of other shooters. So there's almost always only one. If you stay with the guy who brought you to the dance, if you, if you find him and you deal with him and put him down and someone says, yeah, there's another one in the parking lot. I think there's another one on the second floor. Okay, I hear you. And if I hear evidence of that, I may go try to find this, but I'm not going to run around with my gun out looking for the ghost that, because I understand this problem, is probably not there. Because up, if you take out the weird Avada, Arvado, Colorado problem, 
we have, and that's the thing they'll always say about why we shouldn't have armed citizens at these places because the, the cop will show up and misidentify and shoot it. Well, the reason that doesn't happen is because if the armed citizen who's there ends it, they're on their third cigarette by the time the first cop shows up. And it's not the cop's problem. It's the time delay of the 911 call, the, the radio call, and the travel time. So that's why it's never happened before. The, the person there, off-duty cop, which there's several of those that have stopped him, or armed citizens, if you stop him quickly, it'll probably be okay. And then in the aftermath, what we tell them is, if there's, there'll probably be other people there that are not wounded, have a person call 911 for you right next to you as you stay in control of the situation and you, you make sure he tells them repeatedly, the shooting is over, the shooting is over, the shooting is over, but don't count on anything you tell the 911 operator getting to the cop, yeah. either because it won't be told to them or because the cops so jacked up on adrenaline they didn't hear it. Andy Brown, the military police cop that responded uh, in Fairchild, he said once he got the call and started pedaling towards the hospital because he was on the bike patrol, he said the world went silent. He said the radio was blaring, and it was because I've got the 911, didn't hear it. He said cars were passing him, didn't hear it. The world went completely silent, auditory exclusion. And then send any, there'll probably be other survivors that send them out of the building to wave down the cops and try to get move it from a dynamic entry to a controlled. It's over, the shooting's over, the shooting's over. That's what we tell them. Um, yeah, that's what we tell them. Awesome. Oh, that was awesome. Lee, what about the medical aspect for someone? What should they be considering? Well, I want to just reiterate something Ed just said that the cops have shot the wrong person five times. If you breach the perimeter and go in, you just might be number six. Mm. Oh, yeah. Good point. With, with a cell phone in your hand? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'll raise my hand and say, I, I personally almost killed a guy with a cell phone in his hand. On a high-risk traffic stop, and he jumped out of the car, raised up a cell phone, and he can tell you how many lands and grooves are in the barrel of Smith Wesson 406. Um, and just the other thing is, your mind's not going to go where you're not prepared it to go. You need to be playing if-then scenarios. People tend to leave out of the same exit that they came in. That's what happened in one of the big nightclub fire up in the Northeast. There were other exits in that building, but people ran to the same exit where they all came in. Happy Land? Uh, with the one that had the big fire. And Happy the, Land. Yeah, uh, yeah that, not a gun was yeah. used, but a lot yeah. of people were killed, killed by fire. Um, so when you go to public places and public venues, you need to be looking for alternate ways to exit. And it doesn't matter if the signs say employees only or whatever. If you got to get out, you got to get out and go. Um, I think you asked about medical. Well, before we do that, let's briefly talk about something that you just said that I think is super yeah. important. The idea of, and I think the concept has kind of died down, mm -hmm. but it's the truck gun with the plate carrier. And okay, so we have an active shooter situation. Law enforcement has been notified. They're on their way. What are the odds of you being able to leave the scene, put on all this stuff and go in and not get shot by someone? It's not. The odds of not getting shot in that situation would be extremely low. I think. Well, shot at. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not hit. I mean, that's why you're wearing the armor. <laughs> <laughs> we have to define our terms yeah. there. Um, 
You know, I also think you have to make value judgments as to what you're willing to die for. Yeah. And, you know, what your priorities are. All right, I've already broken personal security rule on this, this thing, this podcast. So if I'm in a public place and I'm with my children and I'm off duty, my duty to them as a father is to, I'm going to get them and get out. Yes. If I'm in a public place by myself and it breaks out, my duty and my oath as a deputy sheriff to me says, I have to go risk my life yeah. and go in and, and defend that. Um, I go to events at my children's school. And then the auditorium where it is, there's two, there's two doors in the rear. Everyone goes in those two doors and they go file in and they sit in the same two sections of seats. And I always go in the far door and I go sit on a far right hand side. I'm usually like the only guy over in this section sitting there, but I can also see all the approaches to the school. I mean, to the auditorium, because there's a row of glass doors. And one day my boy asked me, he says, why do you always sit over here and sit over there with everybody else? I said, because if we have to leave in a hurry, I can go out that whole row of doors, but I can also see who's coming. And I can deal with them maybe before they get in the building. Um, those are just this, you have to role play it. You have to game plan it ahead of time. Uh, Ed, you mentioned... Uh, shots inside of a building earlier. One thing for people to take into consideration is the concussion of that happening is going to bring massive amounts of dust out of the ceiling tiles. Visibility is going to be horrible. It's hmm. probably going to activate the fire alarm. The dust from the building ceiling tiles are going to activate the fire alarm. Usually it's not somebody pulling the alarm. It's that is what causes the alarm to go off in these situations. So you're going to have the auditory problem and that's going to cause problems with hearing where the gunfire is coming from. If it's a continuous situation. Or... Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be a, Oh, what's, what's the word? A sanitary situation. Yeah. It's, it's going to be extremely chaotic. And you know, the folks that are there when it's happening, they don't get the hindsight of watching the video sitting in their living room or their kitchen or wherever they're and watching it and coming up with, well, I would have, or I would have done this. Yeah. yeah. They're seeing it in real time. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is right about here on my heads up display mini map, there's not going to be a red dot showing me where the shooter is. No. Okay. I just wanted to clarify, you know, Call of yeah. Duty comes out this week. So yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, we always tell students, you know, the bad guy might look, might not look like what you envisioned him to look like. Well, the scenes aren't going to picture what you envisioned them to look like either. Um, the other thing is, it's likely to be very horrific what you're seeing. And if your brain's not prepared to deal with that, um, yeah, thinking that you're going to be able to do things, you might not be able to. Yeah, yeah that's that's one of the things the cops have seen, and the firefighters and the EMTs have seen carnage and still function. If you've never seen something like that, your response might not be what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. And I hope you never see anything like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, an, an aspect of this as well, 
for those people that are listening to this thinking they're going to go towards the sounds of gunfire. Again, mission drives the gear. Make sure you have whatever's going to help you accomplish that mission with you on you. It's bringing BYOG. Um, That being said, there's a concept that we discuss on a regular basis. You're not going to rise to the occasion. You go down to your level of proficiency, mm-hmm. if that. Yeah. So that means you need to maintain your skill set. That means you need to be able to function in high stress environments. Yeah. And that takes uh, continual focus and work. And you have to have the equipment with you. Yeah. And you know what? That's the thing is, it's easy to do the nightstand dump picture and say, I always carry this stuff with me. And God bless you if you do. Um, I have a belt mounted tourniquet kit. I lost it on a scene and had to go back and find it one time. So I didn't have it with me. Um, I've taken it off of my belt and put it in my backpack when I've gone to get on a plane and forgot to get it out of my backpack and put it back on my belt and remembered it later when I'm getting stuff out of my, 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 my stuff. Um, and then sometimes you're just not going to be able to dress where you can carry it. I can walk around life as a hobo if I want to when I'm not on duty. And when I'm on duty, everybody expects me to have that stuff on yeah. me. Um, you know, I, can, I try to have a tourniquet on me everywhere I go. If I'm able to have a, my backpack and stuff with me, I typically have a full trauma kit in it, but sometimes it gets taken out to put something else in, whatever, or I took it out because I was teaching a class and I needed it on the range. And when I packed the truck up, I threw it back in with other gear and didn't remember to go get it and put it back in my it's backpack. It's still there. Yeah. Yeah, it's still there. Now, I know where there's a trauma kit in every one of our patrol cars. And I can get to it. I know what we've done in our schools with the bulk stores, but I'm not always in those locations. Um, you can improvise tourniquets. They're not going to be as effective as the real deals. Um, you can improvise chest seals. They're not going to be as effective as the real deals. Uh, it's funny. I know of one old EMT that says he opens up the chest seal package, throws the chest seal away and uses the, and the packaging. It's yep. <laughs> the chest seal. So, just get some tape. Yeah. Three, three sides. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so with some training though, you can figure out how to improvise and do some of that stuff. Just burp it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So Caleb calls Lone Star Medics. Uh, Drink water. Yeah. I think it's the day's his birthday as well. Oh. Uh, according to Facebook. Um, Carrie, what's Carrie's last name? Dark Angel Medical? Yeah, uh, Davis. Yeah, Dark Angel Medical. Uh, there's probably some out there that I'm not thinking of, but those are the two that always pop into my mind. Uh, John Murphy, FPF Training. Uh, his Concealed Carry Active. Uh, I, I missed one locally. Yeah, you will get medical training in that class. Yeah. So go to that class and get exposed to some mental health and get some medical training along with getting to do some live fire. Well, with the, the three sources that you just mentioned, also mere, just like with a firearm, mere ownership does not mean proficiency. Right. Right. So these are things we need to know. We need to be able to use them blindfolded. We need to know how they work. We, they, we need to know why they work. Mm-hmm. We need to practice. Even as someone that's well-versed in tourniquets, you still need to practice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just like our firearms. Um, and 
quite frankly, in the aftermath, the medical gear is going to be more important than the firearm is. The odds of me needing medical is way more than I'll ever need a firearm. Yep. Just looking car at stats. Yeah, mm -hmm. car wrecks, all kind of other stuff. Now, there was recently some interesting discussions talking about the importance of chest seals in addition to tourniquets. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I can incorporate that with minimal effort. Yeah. yeah it, it all comes down to value judgments, too. Yeah. And, what, and what are you going to carry? Yeah. Uh, you know, in one hand, you have to carry enough gun to get the job done, but you might not be able to conceal that gun and you're in an environment where you, where you can't, you have to go smaller. It's all value judgment trade-offs. You might work in an environment in which you're not allowed to have a firearm, but that doesn't mean you can't have medical gear. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't have other means of protecting yourself other than a firearm. But also, it, it, I, I yeah. know some people that yeah. go against those policies right. or laws, and, and, and they're the, effective with their tools still. And here's the big thing: we might not ever, you might not be able to get movement from your school system on armed staff, but you might be able to get movement from your school system on stop the bleed training. Yeah, especially if you sell it as Ed mentioned earlier as, as a life skill. And it is. And you might be able to get movement on them like we did, storing medical equipment in the schools. That's genius. That kind of stuff is apolitical. And it doesn't bring the scary gun into the, to the picture. So don't, and that's the thing is we're, probably the people listening to this podcast or the ones that are watching YouTube are gun people. We look at gun answers. Okay, there are other people that are in part of this equation that are looking at the gun as a problem. Yeah. Whether it's the good guys that have it or the bad guys that have it. Does anybody hate EMTs? Well, firefighters. Yeah. I, actually, I was one for an, a year. It was yeah. a great job. I loved it. Yeah. But we can get agreement on medical or closer to agreement on medical, and we can move that needle. So why don't we take the successes that we can get instead of saying, yeah, we, we're losing on this issue. Yeah. One of the things we did win locally was, you know, controlled access to the school building, theoretically, yeah. theoretically. Somebody's always leaving a door open. Somebody's always doing that. We ain't doing other things, but yeah. When the battles you can win that improve or improve the chances of a more successful outcome. Yeah. That's great. Well, what do you think guys? I think that that was actually awesome. Absolutely awesome. Um, do you think we might've reached a point where if we had more, it could be another episode or is there, are there some pointers that we should cover right now? Cause I'm all for another episode if we have it. Oh. Should we call it a night? Sure, because it's eleven thirty-seven. <laughs> and I and I work graves, and I'm it's a day off for me. So I did you run I, out of rock star? Is that I personally never do. Yeah. Okay. Um thanks, Ed and Lee. Awesome discussion. Awesome. I am really looking forward to getting this one out as soon as possible. Unfortunately.
it's probably not going to get the attention it deserves, but it could have the, one of the biggest impacts. Um, to those of you listening or watching, consider the things that were discussed. Listen to what these guys have to say here shortly. Um, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what Ed said, if you like what Lee said, if you like what primary and secondary says, that's me, Matt. Uh, make sure you're given likes. If it's impacted you positively, uh, shares, uh, subscribe. If it's, if it's, if it's good stuff, both of these guys have, uh, independent businesses that, uh, they basically provide some skills, some a specialized set of skills that can help you with this. Um, well worth your time to look into this kind of stuff. Uh, just a podcast by itself is not enough. You need some training and that has, you have to be in a, 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 a student perpetually. And the, the, the topic we talked about today is, is deep. Um, and it's sad, but it's real. And it's important for us to recognize that. And, uh, if this is something that you found to be beneficial, reach out to me. I'm happy to, we can expound on specific facets and additional, uh, episodes, or if there's something that you feel that would be helpful, let me know, uh, Matt at primary secondary.com. If you like this kind of stuff, we do have a Patreon page at primary and second or at uh, patreon.com slash primary and secondary, uh, Patreon kind of covers a lot of bills and yeah, have a lot of stuff going tons of resources, all free for your use. I, I just, I, I can't get over how, how good of a conversation this was. Um, I'm going to turn it over to these guys to provide some final thoughts and also plugs again, pay attention to the plugs, pay attention to where you can find them. Make sure if you like what they said, make sure you're giving them some, uh, some support with likes, subscriptions and shares. And also, by the way, this has been a couple hours now. You probably should have already hit like, just so you know. So do that now. Ed, what do you have for us? If, if, if you're part of an organization, he, this evil, horrible person is coming with a very evil, horrible plan. And he's motivated to carry out his plan. And his plan has a goal of getting 50 or more people shot. So he's coming to implement his plan. The question is, do you have a plan that'll counter that? Because if you don't, he's going to carry out his plan and you're not going to like the results of that. So, um, I do, I, I do presentations, not only just talking about this horrible thing for shock value, but actually looking at trends and doing lessons learned. I can focus them on cops. I've got one specifically on critical lessons learned for law enforcement that I've given at Alita, I've given at the Wyoming SRO conference and other places. I can focus it on schools. I can focus it on churches, businesses, or general study across the board. And I can do consulting and I do do range training with this, but the 3D targets I use are just logistically difficult to travel with. So I have done it in the past, but it's generally done here. And this weekend we're doing an active shooter instructor class that I used to do twice a year, but since Uvalde, I'm doing it six times now. Um, so I do that as well. If I can help you with anything, uh, give me a phone call or Facebook page, last resort or my name. Um, and my email is my name, Ed Monk, E-D-M-O-N-K at AOL.com. If I can answer questions for you, or if you want a presentation, contact me. Love to talk to you about it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting. I, I think you're, I, and I say this to a lot of panelists and I'm, I'm good at, at following through with this. I think you're going to be back. 
<laughs> uh, Lee, what do you have? Uh, one thought that, that came to mind that I meant to, to discuss earlier. If you're in when one of these situations broke out, maybe the concept of a holster ready position where your firearm stays in the holster until you actually last oh. second have to pull it out to shoot it versus running through a seam with, with your weapon out. drawn. Yeah. yeah um, that would be a suggestion because the one thing you can always do is let your shirt go and cover back up over your phone, get your hands up in the event you run into the boys in blue. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole lot easier to do, get rid of it that way than it is to get rid of it out of your hand yeah. and, and led to be mistaken for a bad guy. Um, I have a podcast that wings guy, um, on all of the podcast feeds. And then there's a thing up on YouTube as well. Uh, our guest this past week sucked because I was the guest on my own show. Someone else. How did that work? Uh, I could track down and book myself. So the magnificent Steve, who works with me in my training business, interviewed me <laughs> for the for the show. See, that's why I like having you on because you talk. That's <laughs> because, well, you know, let's see. I got two days this week. I can possibly record an episode. Who can I get? I can get me. Yeah. Hey, hey Steve, can you interview me tonight? Is how that went. Uh, <laughs> so. And you um, work cheap, don't you, Lee? I'm, I'm cheap. I'm cheap. And um, my training business is first-person safety because I could not think of any other better. That was actually my second second try. Um, so it's out there on Facebook, firstpersonsafety.com. Uh, Lee at firstpersonsafety.com is my email address. I had hand surgery eight weeks ago yesterday, and I am not fully recovered from that. And so I have been hesitant to schedule classes uh but i am in january i am actually going to be the lead instructor for a range master instructor class in terra hope but it's sold out so you can't get into that now um there you go and there's ed's card um the first weekend in march i will be in yakinville north carolina saturday will be uh, a shotgun class sunday will be a lever gun class and that will probably be the only uh, lever gun class on the calendar for 2023 and right now it has one registration so if anybody of these people that send me these emails wanting to go to lever gun training descend on yadkinville north carolina the first weekend of march stay in jonesville classes in yadkinville um because it just doesn't sell typically which is why i don't schedule them but we're going to give it a try for this one uh we'll be at TACCON in march uh, we'll be in beautiful Whitehall, Arkansas in August at the Last Resort facility as part of the Range Master Instructor Reunion. So if you are a Range Master Certified Instructor, come to that reunion there at Whitehall and then come to any stuff that Ed's got going on uh, throughout the year. So hopefully I will start scheduling some stuff. I'm going to try to stay a little closer to home this year because in 2022, I burned leave faster than I accrued it. So 2023 is probably not going to be as far ranging as I was this last year when trying to teach them local stuff, everything. So just watch my scheduling and see what comes up. So you had a personal thing happen that you just brought up mm -hmm. that I think is important to discuss just okay. for a second. Sure. You had surgery. Mm -hmm. It was on your right hand. Yes, it was. You were a right-hander. There's the scar. Right yeah. There. yeah. So what did you do as far as firearms were concerned? <laughs> well, I... I'm a graduate of the Rogers Shooting School, which has a lot of support and only shooting in it. 
the Georgia Public Safety Training Center has a class that is based on Rogers and I've attended it three times. So I've had extensive um, training on shooting in the, with, the, with the support hand, getting it out of the strong side holster yeah. with support hand. I teach a class of that same material and I've attended Dave Spalding's class on it. Uh, typically the only time I practice it is when I'm teaching that class because I do think it is such a low skill set. Yeah. However, all of a sudden I'm in a situation where I know my right hand is out of action before I leave the house. Yeah. So I did uh, get left-handed holsters and carry left-handed. Uh, for the first six weeks, um, I was very concerned that if I all of a sudden found myself in a situation that I would remember that the pistol was actually on the left side and not the right side. And I thought it would you know, hamper my spot. I was not concerned about being able to deal with the situation once I had the gun out and in my left hand, getting it there in appropriate time was a concern to me. Um, I actually did go attend a uh, pistol-mounted optics instructor course left-handed during all of this. Uh, it was kind of funny, the guy that was running it when he would call support hand-only drills and he's like, Lee, 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 just do whatever it is you're, you're right. doing. <laughs> you're, you're doing this whole class the wrong way, so just do it that way. Um, which was an odd thing is I found all of the training I had done left-handed had always been left-hand only because I was presuming right hand's not out. I was trying to shoot that class as a true lefty mirror yeah, image. that's weird. And what I found was I tended to pull the gun hard to the right because my right arm is stronger than my left arm. And so I had to go to a crazy, God, if the internet had seen pictures of it, a teacup grip so that I was getting support of the pistol with both hands, but I wouldn't pull it out of the you know, I wasn't pulling it offline and misaligning the gun. Um, I did go down to the range in a, a couple of weeks after the surgery and made it through one live round. Oh, and, and then I went back a couple of weeks ago and I managed to shoot 23 live rounds. I could not have shot 24. Uh, I stopped when I had to, the hand swelled back up, everything else, but I did said, so, okay, if I could get through that many rounds, I'm okay to put the gun back where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been difficult. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at possibly having the surgery, same surgery in my left hand. Uh, so I may be going through all of this again, but, uh, it is what it is. Thankfully I had done a lot of work yeah. that made it easy to get. I can't imagine what it would be like for, you slip in on the ice and break your hand and now you got to figure out and you've oh, never carried or shot lefty. Yeah. 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 Again, I wasn't concerned once I had the gun in my left hand. Yeah. It was just remembering it was at the left to start was a concern for me. Yeah. And that's real. Mm -hmm. And to aid my recovery, I bought an LCR in 327 and carried as you should 32. Yeah. As you should. <laughs> I had to make the internet happy for once. A certain small corner of the internet. So what what load were you carrying and shooting? Uh, all I could get a hold of was a Magtech. Yeah. Uh, Walk cutters I bought off a of Lucky Gunner. Yeah. And then I found them cheaper elsewhere, but I bought them off nice of Lucky Gunner. Uh, the local academy sport had a crazy, ridiculous amount of Aguila 32 long mm -hmm. 
just lead round nose ammo and I bought 500 rounds of it and there were still several hundred rounds on the shelf just because I didn't take all of it because it was just so expensive. Uh, that 500 rounds will probably get me through several years of shooting this gun um, because what the role I intend to use it for is not going to be a lot of rounds. I'll probably shoot more rounds teaching with it than I will yeah. to do anything else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, a, a realistic condition. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I'm looking at is uh, I may take uh, Chuck Haggard's pocket rocket class because I can shoot that with a 22, thinking I, at least I'll be able to get out and get some hot trigger work yeah. with a low recoil gun that may not aggravate my injury as much. Yeah. And I have carried a 22 some during all of this specifically because of that. It's yeah. not ideal, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. Well, we had an episode specifically discussing about discussing that topic that opti uh, let's see here. What is it? Optimal is not real. Is not realistic. Optimal is not universal. Right. And so not everyone has the same, not everyone is like me, six, five and two something. Right. Yeah. I've got two something. I just don't have the six, five. Yeah. <laughs> and with the holidays, it's, it's, it's higher. Hovering above 250. But that's another story. Uh, again, I make up in width what I don't have in height. Nice. <laughs> um, again, awesome discussion. Thank you guys for, for, for joining me. Um, big thanks to our sponsors. Big thanks to Big Tech's Ordnance, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther. Again, huge thank you to the Patreon subscribers. This episode was live for Patreon subscribers. Um, they had a text going they could do q a during the live show if you want to have access to these when they're live to present questions comments or whatever that we most likely depending uh most likely will address uh that starts at network support on our patreon page five dollars a month gets you a bunch of discounts discord access live access to these also typically i release these a few days earlier for the patreon subscribers so they get um, when it's on YouTube, they can, they can watch it before everyone else does. And they can laugh at us being dumb. I think that's pretty much everything I have. I have a couple more. Let's see here. I think next week we have another survival episode. I believe we're going to be talking about uh, fire, fire starting. Um, yeah, the last discussion was really cool. Talking about this, the, uh, food, water, we have a couple more law enforcement centric ones, um, have some knife ones coming up. Being on graves, though, really messes with my ability to think clearly and, and plan out this stuff. It's usually the day of the podcast. I'm like, oh, crap, we have a podcast. I don't even have a panel yet. Fortunately, this is not one of them. Um, yeah, but good times. Just Love doing yourself these. as a guest. I should. <laughs> it would be so boring. Um. Yeah, I think that's all. I think I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to try to edit this as soon as possible so I can get it out. I'm going to pass it on to some friends who are teachers as well. And hopefully we can instigate some positive change with your guys's uh, good insights. So thanks again. And we'll talk to you later.